Welcome to the Strength Culture Podcast. It's funny, I feel like I know you because <clears throat> I have followed your work for a long time. Um, at least back to the juggernaut training systems days. So it's been quite a quite a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's awesome. Um, yeah. <clears throat> That's fine. I don't know what happened there, but I'm sure it's, I can imagine it's probably very similar to some experiences I've had with some fitness companies that I've previously worked for. So it seems to be how it goes. Yeah. I mean, I, I still have a great relationship with everyone. That's um, good. But I was, because I was like, I don't know, my own entity, like the physical therapy and the rehab was kind of separate. Clinical athlete was my own, was my thing. Like I was within arm's reach of everything but you know i moved to california juggernaut was just online right it was obviously it was it was chad's thing from day one to now and um it was all online and then he was just like hey jim would be cool and he was like why don't you come out and move to california and put your pt office in this gym and I lived in Indiana, so that sounded kind of cool. And so that I mean, <laughs> I competed at the Arnold Classic in 2015 and then just packed up my car and drove across the country and lived on his couch for three months until one, the gym opened. We could actually get equipment into it. I could find a place to live. But it, I mean, it, it lasts the gym, it's the physical facility here lasted about two years. And I mean, it would have been awesome. There was just no systems put in place to keep it running. There was no there were just no systems. Um, yeah. And so after that time, Chad was just like, you know, it's just not making money and uh, I'm losing money and we're going to pull the plug. And I was like, all right, you know, I understood. And for me, yeah. I just 20 was it a pretty big facility? <laughs> yeah, it was huge. It was actually half and half uh, a CrossFit gym and juggernaut was like the literal other half of the uh, okay. but it was a huge big ass warehouse um uh and so you know they just went back to being online and and uh i went and just put my head in clinical athlete and that was like 2017 the fallout came from just athletes that had moved here to be resident athletes to train in that gym like that was where the ugliness gotcha. happened but uh, you know yeah. yeah it running gyms is tough man yeah i mean I can, yeah. I can especially imagine in california there's like it's so saturated out there with basically everyone being out there for the most part until everyone started moving to like texas but yeah yeah i mean you just have to you have to put the awesome ideas into practice and you have to have people and manpower and it it takes a while to, to get those systems up and running and um you know if you don't do that before you know it two years have gone by and it's kind of it's kind of too late to try to it would be like another two years of attempting to implement yeah. whatever process is going to keep the gym up and alive so i i mean i stayed here in southern california and just moved 20 minutes up the road to a weightlifting gym um that was more like established only in the sense of the gym was the owner that was their thing like they weren't this nationally recognized you know, content and coaching company. Um, so I knew that there would be more stability as a, as far as a having having a facility. 
Yeah. Especially if you, if you're making like a decent income online, it's, I don't want to say it doesn't take as much work because that's not necessarily correct, but it's just like the exponential sort of uh, potential for online for the same amount of work is like much more. Right. So it's like the effort that I, I mean, I have this like a very small facility, just 2,600 square foot, like a very sort of boutique studio that I built Mm -hmm. um, during COVID. And when I opened it originally, it was just going to be sort of my studio to do all of my online. And then of course, when you open, you know, your ideas change and then like people are hitting you up. And so, you know, I went through a few phases of like kind of trying to figure out who I wanted in here and who I did not I mean, I'm fortunate that again, like the online um, is able to float the gym or has been able to float the gym. And so it, it kind of allowed me a little bit of a buffer to really like decide, okay, like what do I want to do with the space? And it's not like a 10,000 square foot facility, you know? So it's not like I have like a million dollar gym, but it wasn't cheap, but it, it's nice because I can kind of have who I want in here. And I was able to like sort of select my population. And like I said, it went through a few phases and now it's really getting to the point where it's like starting to grow and people are coming and I'm doing seminars and workshops. Like it's kind of turned into like a pseudo education sort of space slash studio. So yeah, um, I really enjoy that. But I mean, that's awesome. It kind of augment like it augments the online stuff too. Because if you have the people that you want in there, then you, you're always, it's always, there's always content generation or idea generation. It just like the two things kind of help themselves instead of just yeah. being, oh, you know, I've got my, in, I've got the the brick and mortar that I just got to keep this open because it, you know, get people in the door. Um, Cause that it's no fun. And it doesn't really work unless you really like in physical therapy land, unless you're like going really high volume, then you need to either niche down hard and go in all in on that and find everybody you can because there's always enough people in your niche you just have to like oh for sure it's yeah. called marketing yeah um or it's just any and everybody and go insurance based and you know reimbursement will be terrible but your volume will be so high that it'll make up for it yeah i worked for a physical therapy clinic for a few years he was cash based um and he sort of specialized in like hip and pelvis. Like he, mm. he had very much like a specialty that he focused on, which is kind of interesting in physical therapy. Cause you would think like you just kind of would work with anything, but like, that was like primarily his, his focus. And, um, it took a few, like he was very like high ticket initially and did pretty well, but they've expanded quite a bit and they've got like, like between probably six and eight, uh, therapists in there now and at the time it was just like a couple so um, it's taken some years though that's been like six or seven years but they, it takes time that's the other thing too yeah, yeah it just yeah. takes time you know and you have to stick it out like you just have to you have to stick out the rough patches and just like try to see through to the next day and it's like one of those things that if you can just stick out like that initial sort of three years or so it's like mm-hmm. from there you're you're pretty good but it, it does just take time, but you know, like I said, being in California where everything's just incredibly expensive and, um, you know, sa- I guess the saturated market's kind of an excuse, right? Cause technically any market anywhere, you're always going to have competition and whatever, but yeah. So we started this kind of loose, um, which I kind of like, but I want you to introduce yourself. So, you know, I've, man, how long have you been putting content on you on YouTube? Probably. How many years ago was that with Juggernaut? It's been a decade. 
I mean, I was going to say starting a year or 10 years ago up until now. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think I followed you a few years kind of after I got into the industry because I got in like via CrossFit, like, like a lot of mm -hmm. people. Um, and, and then, and then just through CrossFit, obviously followed a lot of YouTube. And then there wasn't a lot of like fitness YouTube sort of pages a decade ago, you know? Um, and there's a few remaining that were around then, but obviously it's much different these days, but maybe introduce yourself. Um, you know, who are you, what do you do? And then we'll kind of just go from there. I like to just kind of loosely go. I don't really have any structure. I just like to see where the conversation takes us. I do have at least a couple things I'd like to pick your brain about and talk to you about, um, which I find incredibly fascinating. And I know a lot of my listeners and clients and stuff will also find the discussion fascinating. So um, I'll give it over to you. Cool. Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate you having me on. Um, it was, yeah, it's funny that we haven't, it's been this long since we've connected, but I mean, we've like, connected here and there over the years. Yeah. Um, it's funny how the internet works. <laughs> and yeah, so I'm a physical therapist. I, I am in Southern California and um, I've been out. I've been a physical therapist for, for uh, 10 years. It'll be 10 years in August. And before that, I started my career as a, as a strength and conditioning coach. That's why I went to school. I wanted to be a university, you know, SNC coach and wanted to, I don't know who knows be the head strength coach at Alabama or whatever, you know, the hopes right. and dreams of an 18 year old kid. Um, having tasted the SNC life in, in high school and college, I was like, Whoa. So I, <laughs> um, so I, I graduated undergrad, um, and started instead of going university route, went more of the private sports performance coach route at several different facilities. I played football in college at a small division one double A school. Um, after that, I started competing in, in powerlifting, a little bit of CrossFit and then settled into weightlifting. So I've been doing the sport of weightlifting for the, probably the last, yeah, over the last 10 years, um, even before PT school. So it's almost been like 12 years. So, you know, a, a, a mediocre athlete myself, but as a strength conditioning coach, um wanted a little bit more you know, people would come to me with you know i could write a program and i could teach the squad and snatch and clean and jerk and these types of things but if if people had injuries or if they were dealing with some stuff that just wasn't part of the textbook then i didn't quite know how to manage that stuff and so i thought looked back into things and thought that physical therapy would be the perfect you know bridge to that um and of course again delusions of grandeur thought I would be like LeBron James's student PT, you know, for three years or whatever. Um, but, you know, I went to physical therapy school in 2010, graduated in 2013 from the university of Indianapolis. So I mean, it was, I mean, it was a great experience and, and I think it, what I got out of it, what I wanted, which was to start to, to start to blend the ideas of strength conditioning rehab performance health all these things into into one um and so for the past decade then it's just been kind of trying to reconcile that you know those ideas in my head and and create models and processes um that help to manage some of the messiness and all the uncertainty and the gray that come along with you know working with humans and training and injury and pain and all these all these complex factors so um that's that's kind of in a nutshell um what i've been doing 
and I mostly, you know, I've been working with athletes. I, but of all levels, you know, define an athlete as anybody with a physical activity goal. It doesn't mean they're necessarily all that good at what they want to do, but um, generally I'm working with people who, who want to get back to something, um, you know, and, and do it at a level that takes some time and, and takes some work. And so those are the types of people that I get jazzed up to work with. Yeah, that's good. I like, that's a good description. I like that. Cause it's always funny. Cause when I sort of try to like categorize my clients as well, like I say athletes and sometimes I do mean like elite level athletes, but other times I just say athletes and I just mean like my clients, because I don't like, I don't mean like, I don't like being like, Oh yeah. My athlete population, like my, my general population. Right. Like, yeah, yeah, like it's, yeah. Totally. it's like kind of demeaning to them, like in a sense, but like industry speak, we're like, okay, we, we can discern the two, but like, I, I try not to like say it around them. Cause they're like, what do you, you know, what do you mean? But, um, no, that's pretty funny. So, um, physical therapy, it's, it's, it's ironic because, um, I have basically always been private industry myself. Um, I've been fortunate that I've never really had, I don't want to say had to, I guess I've just, I personally feel like I'm fortunate that I haven't really been jaded sort of by the like collegiate or pro level sort of strength conditioning training. Like I, you know, like you said, people have like these big dreams or they have these big ideas and expectations for like that industry or like what it means to be in that industry. And like more times than not, it's not even remotely close to probably what you would think it would be working at like, I wouldn't say working at that level, but probably working underneath that, like uh, where, where there's just a lot of say in what other people think you should be doing. Right. Um, and, and not having like as much free reign um, as you'd like, like it's actually like the environments can be, can be pretty controlling and like all my friends that are actually in it professionally at that level it's like really long hours and like kind of shitty pay and it's almost like if you can do even moderately well online you're gonna make way more money than than working first like a, a D, even a big d1 school you know um and then i i worked for a not like i worked for a physical therapy clinic while i was also um working as like a personal trainer and group fitness instructor and then I did that for a few years. And then I kind of came to this crossroads where um, I was offered the opportunity to go back to school to get my DPT through the clinic that I was working at. The owner was willing to pay for it on the basis that I obviously like contracted to that space for you know five years or, or something like that um, post, right? Including like continue to work through school and whatever, um, which is like a, like a, nice offer. You know what I mean? Like somebody's willing to like front the, the money for you to go to back to school. And obviously they believe in you, like in the sense that they were offered it, but I ended up turning it down because I had like, I had a taste of like physical therapy for a few years. And like, I just really always personally felt like my integrity was really like, not that it's not helpful, but just like my interest was really just exercise. And like, I, like at the end of the day, like a lot of the people that we dealt with were people who were paying a lot of money to come get manual therapy two, three times a week, like a lot of money. And, and they just wouldn't exercise. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it was like, that was like the biggest frustration for me. It was like, it's, it was, I was like remembering how people come in and spend 150, 185 an hour to get manual therapy. 
And like he did his best to like, okay, you got to figure out some sort of like fitness goal or something and like kind of move on from this. But people just kind of get addicted to that. I feel like it's like a quick fix and a costly one at that. But, you know, at that price point, you're, you're probably dealing with people who it doesn't really matter. Um, but then I ended up kind of going off and deciding that I was going to work, can stay private industry and build a few gyms and had a few success, like fail, like success and then failures, just like things didn't work out with business partners and so on and so forth. And then finally just like ended up on my own. But, um, I want to ask you like how much, like you went to PT school a decade ago, right? Like a little, so how much has the industry changed? How much has the education changed? And, you know, I see a lot, in fact, a lot of people in my circle, and I actually saw a post the other day, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Zach Couples, but yeah, he made a post about like PT school not really being worth it anymore for like the, I think the vast majority of why people maybe go into the profession, because I think sort of like maybe like you and maybe like myself, I really just want to work with an athlete population. And the majority of what I do is through movement and through exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and his recommendation was basically like, hey, save yourself a ton of money and a, and a ton of headache and like go get your LMT, like, like licensed massage. So you can actually like legally put your hands on people and do manual therapy if needed. But like, I think for what a lot of people go into it, sort of how they're looking to apply it, he kind of suggested maybe go that route instead. But I'm curious to hear sort of your opinion on that and, and just what your take is and what you think maybe you're, you going the route of physical therapy you know, what it offers you that maybe nothing else can, or have you changed your mind about it? Or, or what would you recommend to other people? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a jam packed subject for sure. And it's, it's tough because, you know, I can't, I can't live the counterfactual of, of having chosen not to go and to, and to, and to live out the next decade to see where my life would have ended up. Right. Um, I think pers- for me, the opportunities that I was afforded were afforded to me because I was a DPT. Um, in the working with juggernaut training systems in the beginning and just these professional opportunities and the networking was because I had this specialty rehab degree. There's there's so there's for there's no doubt in my mind that for me the credential opened up doors that that still may have opened in the future but but may have just required a bit more digging a bit more time um so there was just there was just that and i and i consider that you know whatever if luck is preparation meeting opportunity i those those <laughs> those opportunities um i was just fortunate to have those um that doesn't mean that that the return has paid for PT school though. So that's, that's another conversation. Um, I look at it as almost like the informed consent process for like laying out options for our clients and our, and our patients, like here are the options, here's the risk reward, here are my recommendations. Here's what happens if we do nothing. I mean, the, the options are physical therapy school, which is, um, pretty expensive. It's, it's comparable in like cost per per unit of time to med school um but but the average pay is more comparable to say nurse nurse practitioner 
compared to MD, compared to medical doctor. So you're paying top dollar, but the, the initial average compensation for your, you know, everyday PT is not that. Um, and that's a real problem. And so it's, it's almost like the flaws more or less is still like in the design, like the university design and how they, how they determine cost of, of like units and classes for, you know, cause they, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a deep, it's a complex problem because the universities don't care about that. They don't care. The universities <laughs> don't care about how much you get paid after you graduate. The universities care about the, the tuition money. Right. Um, so it's not their problem that you're not getting paid after school. But the other issue is that there's a lot of new physical therapy schools popping up um, a lot, a lot. And so now you have this saturated market of, of PTs, lots of them, new grads that are looking for jobs yeah. that are having a hard time finding jobs, especially in outpatient orthopedics where everybody wants to work. And the, those jobs already pay less and the demand is so high, now they're paying even less. And so it's, do I pick the setting that I wanted to work in for a third, for two thirds of the salary, or do I go work in a setting that I don't want to work in? Let's say, I don't know. I don't even want to say like some, some type of hospital base, but because I don't right. want, there's, there are people that want to work in those settings and I don't right, want to downplay that. Physical yeah, therapy, yeah, of yeah. But it's, yeah, we it, don't it, mean, we don't mean this to offend anyone who's no. like gone any of these routes. We're just like, I just thought it was a very interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, um, and these other settings pay more, but home health, hospital settings, there's there's more pay. Um, and so it's just a, it's a complex problem. Lots of new programs. There's no incentives necessarily for the universities, universities to change because they're filling their rosters. Yeah. Um, what's probably going to happen is that, you know, in any complex system, there's going to be a delay and there's going to be some resetting, some natural kind of resetting where the market saturation is going to catch up. People are going to start to figure out that the return on PT is not as great. Therefore, enrollments are going to drop. There's going to be some programs that, that have to just cut, get cut because they're not filling enrollments. And then, and so you'll have maybe then a surge in in salary because the the demand is a, a little higher or uh the demand is is you're not getting as many new grads right to fill these spots so now you actually have employers who are looking um and and so yeah i mean i don't disagree with what what zach was saying about the profession i just like i tend to lay it out for people just kind of like i try not to put my opinion on it cuz obviously i chose pt and i and I don't have any regrets because I think you can make it have, you can, you can practice however you want. You can, there's no, point. like, yeah, you got to follow the, if you're going to stay licensed and state licensure, there's, but you can practice how you want. You can see the people, people you want. If you don't want to work, there are places that are going to give you autonomy and going to give you mentorship. Yeah. It's harder to find. Um, but hell, I mean, that's why we create clinical athlete and all these, these other entities that try to create a network that's going to provide these students with a great mentor community and also allow them to practice in a way that's going to improve their skill set over time and their and their reasoning process over time. Um, so that's why I say, you know, do your do your due diligence on the return. Go shadow lots of different um, 
settings and lots of different places within the setting that you think you want to work and really get a feel for the profession if it's something that you want to do. Yeah. Um, and all and, and then just understand that you can practice how you want. Like if if you go to one setting or one outpatient clinic and you're like, well, I didn't like the way that their setup was. I didn't like how they were, you know, using different treatments or that weren't active or like I say, okay, well then you just learned how you don't want to treat. That's like that's yeah. not PT. Yeah. That was that's just an example of how physical therapy is administered, but physical therapy is right. not a commodity. And that's fortunate and unfortunate that if you're somebody with knee pain and you go to 10 different physical therapists, you're probably going to get 10 that's different opinions, yeah, exactly. 10 different treatment plans, <laughs> you know, and that's, it's unfortunate. I don't know if that's a, I brought this up and the point the counterpoint was that's not a that's not a problem limited to pt if you go to 10 different mds with a it's it's any yeah it's any general health in healthcare training it doesn't matter yeah exactly exactly. um so that's how i lay it out Um, nutrition you know what i mean any any general health yeah oh yeah nutrition for sure so yeah when when people ask me that you know i start with a big sigh and i say all right sit down let's talk and and so and then we have the dialogue (laughs) and it sounds something like that um and i try not to inject too much of my opinion or to, or tell people what to do because you know i don't want that blood on my hands yeah you just give them you just give them the sort of like you said the risk and reward of each scenario yeah because i'm sure i'm sure i'm not the first person to ask you that because i get asked that and i'm not even a physical therapist so i know someone who has like the presence that you have online i'm sure that's a question you get asked time, all the time all the time like young students are like hey should i go to dpd school or should i not what are my options like what do you think so i, that's, I think that's a really like just sane way of, of sort of like looking at the whole, like all of your options. And, and then you like look at the individual and say, okay, now you kind of have to like discern yeah. what route you want to go based on my recommendations. No, and that's I did, good. Yeah. And I didn't get that. And like, gosh, I think it's so tough because they're kids. And even, even after undergrad, you know, I always make a joke, like, my, you know, my frontal lobe didn't develop until I was 25, 26, 27, maybe even 30, if I really think back and <laughs> yeah, uh, I, but, I, but, I would say the same. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, you know, so, so you've got these 21, it, it, let's just say they've, they've graduated or they're about to graduate undergrad. You've got these 19, 20, 20, 20, 21 year old, very young adults who are about to make a decision that's going to you know, impact them for the rest of their life. Like going to physical therapy school is going to impact you for the rest of your life. Bec- if nothing, if for nothing else, because of the money you put down financial cup burden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to be that, to be that young, to make that decision and to really like forecast, cause I didn't think that way. Um, it's easy. It's really, they'll give you all the loans that you want. And if you want to travel for your clinicals and, you know, go to an out of state program because you read online that it was number one ranked in the country and it's going to cost $80,000 more, they'll give you loans for it. They'll give you all the money you need. Um, And it's great in it when you're in it. And then, and then afterwards you're like, oh, shit. And afterwards you go, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah, And you're older. (laughs) You were like, damn, (laughs) like, what was I even think like, what did I even think about this? So. Yeah, it's it's all that stuff. Yeah, I guess like you said, it's I think we can kind of go into it because one thing like you keep saying systems and I, I like this is one of the the sort of concepts that have probably really changed my career and look like 
taking different systems and giving myself different models and lenses to sort of see training through. Mm. It's really opened up a lot of things for me and also like really narrowed down things a lot of for me at the same time. Um, because I know that like dynamic systems is something that I've loosely spoken about. I don't speak too much about it, like just on publicly on Instagram. Cause I think a lot of people haven't really been exposed to the concepts enough that then it starts to become a whole conversation of people. What does that mean? It's like, yeah. okay. Um, but I, it is, it is a concept that I've, I've spoken a lot about with other peers and then like certain clients. Cause I, a lot of my clients are coaches as well. So it's, um, it's really interesting, but I sort of want to talk about it and I want to let you sort of break it down because I also recently saw that video of your Instagram. It looks like you were doing like a, um, some sort of workshop or seminar. Was it, was it NASA or what were, who were you presenting to in that video? Oh, that was the NSCA. The NSCA. So I saw you kind of riffing on some dynamic systems concepts and I was like, Ooh, I don't think these, I don't, I was like, I don't think they know what they're getting into. Like, but at the same time, it's like a very like mind blowing, it's simple, but at the same time, it's a very mind blowing concept. And I think it like really gets people thinking about their approach because, you know, I, even to this day, it's crazy how much black and white there still is in, in just the fitness industry and general health as a whole, because like you said, you'll go to 10 different places and you'll get 10 different ideas, but all those people will deliver their ideas as if like they're the absolute one thing that's like the way that this has to be done or should be done. Um, and there is still, I think a lot of like linear thinking in terms of people sort of have their education or their bias, wherever they get their education from. And then they just kind of take that idea and they just transplant it on every scenario that they come across without really actually going through the process of like observing what's in front of you. What do you see asking questions like, and then kind of taking fold from there. It's like, oh, knee pain, clamshells, supine leg raises, hmm. you know, core strengthening. And it's just like, and that's the answer. Whereas I think this whole idea of, of rehab and treatment and even just not even in rehab settings and training, because let's be honest, like a lot of athletes deal with this stuff, but they wouldn't necessarily consider themselves like in a rehabilitative setting. Um, they're just like sort of chronically or acutely trying to work around things that may happen, like different perturbations and things like that. But I want you to sort of explain dynamic systems theory, how you came across it, because it's not something that is at least commonly taught in in really anywhere, like in physical. I know definitely in physical therapy, like I'm sure there are programs that are sort of addressing these different models and lenses now. But I really feel like it's one of those things that you kind of have to go out and look for. And then when you find it, you kind of grab onto it and then you obviously learn about it. But maybe you can talk a little bit about it, how you came across it. And, and I'm sure this will be a lot to unpack, but like how it influences you now, because I, I just just knowing what I know, I know it influences you quite a bit. So, yeah. Yeah. So I was actually introduced to it. Um, in various forms even before physical therapy school, um, but also in PT school, like first class, first semester was called movement science and dynamical systems theory and skill acquisition was, was a part of that curriculum. But the, the issue was that so was 
gross anatomy and so was neuro and so was all these other classes that I needed to memorize or I was going to fail out of PT school the first semester. So thinking abstractly about a dynamical system with no context of what that meant in the real world, just straight over my head in one ear out the other. Um, and that's, you know, that's a whole nother can of worms in terms of like how school is actually set up and right. you know, what, what you prioritize in terms of the grading system versus actually learning and all these things. So, um, various, you know, various means of, of getting exposed to this idea, but every time I would get exposed to it, it would kind of stick a little bit more and it would like, I would, I'd have more real life context to put it towards. Um, and it's funny cause my, you know, I've come full circle to know, like I've, cause I knew we were going to talk about this. I pulled this book out that I've had for probably 10 years. It's, I don't even know how I got it. It says property of Tacoma public library, which means that I got it. I must've went to a library when I was doing a PT internship in 2012 in Tacoma, Puyallup, Washington. <laughs> it was wow. in the library or something. I don't, I don't actually know it's called, it's called chaos. You can say it's probably mirrored, but it's called oh, chaos. Yeah. An introduction to dynamical systems. Um, and all you got to do is open this book and just flip through and see that for me, I'm not qualified to even talk about this. <laughs> so if we if we if we back up all the way, <laughs> you know, a system is a system has parts. The parts interact and there's a function. So, so that's your basic definition of a system parts that interact that serve a function a dynamical system in short is a system that's ever-changing so that could be a human that could be the weather it could also just be a pendulum right yeah you get a little bit into chaos theory and stuff like that where it's like but that's where it comes from yeah exactly so yeah. so dynamical system is an ever-changing system Dynamical systems theory is the mapping, the modeling, and the study of ever-changing systems. In order to map and model, you need a mathematical system that maps and models change, which is calculus. So right off the bat, what we've done in sports med training, when we say dynamical systems, we've basically taken a an actual theory that can be studied, that can be modeled, that have that can be proved with proofs, with mathematical proofs, and we've we've essentially turned it into a conceptual model. Um, because I don't know any coach or PT who's doing calculus as part of their, you know, as part of their treatment. Right, so I just right. kind of want to yeah, throw yeah. that out there, like because you said it in the beginning when this this is a deep dark rabbit hole, and I find that um, people will just start to learn new terms. Because there's abundance of them, abundance being a term in, in motor skull acquisition, dynamical systems, and you can just start learning these terms with a surface level understanding and like a dynamical systems theorist, someone who actually studies it and maps these systems would, would just probably cringe. And so we're going to talk about it. I'll talk about how it, how it has influenced me, but mostly how we've, we've taken like the surface level of this idea and try to make it applicable to training and, and rehab. Um, yeah. But if we just take that idea, ever-changing system, okay, well, the human is that. 
Now, the human is a complex dynamical system, complex system being that there's multiple subsystems interacting to create some emergent property. That's not always the case in every dynamical system. So, so the idea is all complex systems are dynamical. All complex systems are ever-changing, ever-evolving. But not all dynamical systems need be complex. Let's go back to the pendulum. A pendulum is not complex. We can take the parts, we can take it apart, we can put it back together, it's going to serve the same function predictably. A double pendulum, if you, if, if people listening can go, just Google double pendulum and you get a little gif of a double pendulum slapping around, Yeah. we add, we add one degree of freedom, but we can still take that, that double pendulum apart, put it back together and it serves the same purpose, but it becomes much more stochastic, much more chaotic looking where it's flipping all over the place. And if you'll never, it'll never retrace the same path twice. Even if you try to start it, you really try hard to start it in the same exact point two times in a row, you'll never be able to quite do it. And it's always going to take a different path. Just like if you roll a rock down a hill, you'll, it'll never ever take the same path twice, even if you really try. So but that double pendulum, although it's not complex, because it doesn't have a bunch of subsystems that interact to create some emergent property, it's still is it's it's still um, very hard to predict, even with that added degree of freedom. But it's also bound by constraints, so it is predictable to an extent, you know that the length of the pendulum or the diameter of the entire line is, it's not going to go outside of that circumference. Right. It's not going to be any, it's not going to go out of that diameter. So you know, at least you can start to map the boundary conditions. And so that idea, boundary conditions or constraints is the model that has been applied mostly to rehab and training this constraints-led approach of complex systems. And that's what that was the, my talk with the NSCA. And I've done this um with, with PTs, but it so this was a roundabout way. The reason I want to take that long approach was to kind of like whittle down to where it's become applicable, where it started, where it is, and now where it's become applicable. But this idea of boundary conditions, now we can start to apply to the complex human system. The human system is complex because there's multiple subsystems. You can't take the human apart and then put it back together again as if it's a watch. Or, or a Frankenstein car. or something. Yeah. yeah. And you can't explain the phenomena that comes from the human system. You can't explain uh, consciousness. You, you can't really explain the movements that emerge from each component part just one plus one plus one. If I put these systems together, then uh, this will emerge. No, it's, it's an inter it's, it's an interaction that's ever changing and ever dynamic. Um, that's why we can't just start transplanting organs into different people and have them function exactly the same. We're not Frankenstein right. because the body will react in very complex ways to that. So because that's extremely unpredictable, extremely nonlinear, and extremely hard to map model and explain then we create these models where we say okay what are the boundary conditions of this system and the constraints-led approach 
talks about the constraints being based on the task that you're trying to accomplish, the individual's boundary conditions, what they're kind of bringing to the table physically, and the environment that they're embedded in. And so all three of those components interacting together to create whatever the output is, the movement, the behavior. So we'll think of some examples here because it becomes very relevant when we're talking about interventions and when we're talking about try, trying to troubleshoot what is going to provide the most bang for buck in terms of our interventions, be those from a coach, you know, exercise interventions or just anything that we do that tries to nudge the system one way or another. So let's think of somebody who's walking on a treadmill. The, the goal of the task, let's just say the goal of the task is to stay on your feet. Don't fall down. You're going to see if, if we start to increase the speed of that treadmill pretty linearly at a linear rate, just one tenth of a mile per, mile per hour at a time, what you're going to see is the person's walking gait is going to increase proportionally to the rate that you speed up that treadmill. They're just going to start walking faster because the task requires them to, to stay on their feet. Right. At some critical threshold, they're going to break into a trot. And that's a hallmark of complex systems is that they is these this idea of critical thresholds. All of a sudden, some movement pattern emerges in which they have to change their state. Go from a walking gait to a running gait. There's a state change. All of a sudden, just one, one more tenth to hit that tipping point. Right. But, but what if they don't know how to run? What if they have a pulled hamstring? What if they have a sprained ankle? What if they have a fused joint? What if they have shoes that don't have enough traction? So the goal is to stay on your feet. Well, we can start playing the potato head game is what I call it. Mixing and matching different scenarios in which there are, the boundary conditions change. What happens? What's the outcome? What emerges? And if you think about it, that is rehab and that is training. We've got all these factors, the individual, the task could be the movement that you're trying to train or the goal activity, and then the environment in which they're performing those things. And, and you turn up, turn down, or change the, the dial on, on any one variable. How does that affect the system? Another example, imagine you're walking on dry concrete. Nice day, regular shoes, no problem. Just walking on dry concrete. Snap of a finger, that dry concrete turns into ice. What happens? Immediately, the system changes. The state changes. You start shuffling so you don't fall down. It, that's an emergent property. That's an emergent behavior because the environmental constraint changed. Your boundary condition changed. It wouldn't matter now. So, okay, the, the next step is what is the bottleneck in the system? Because that's, if, if we can identify the constraints and the boundary conditions, then we can start to identify where we have leverage to intervene. So if we can identify rate limiters, what's the limit? What I say rate limiters, by definition, a rate limiter would be a single, you know, the bottleneck, but we're never quite sure what the bottleneck constraint is. And so we can make hypotheses that it's, you know, a set. But in our first example in the treadmill, if they can't stay on their feet, 
Do they know how to run? Uh, do they have requisite range of motion at all joints? Do they have requisite coordination? Did they just not understand the task? Did they didn't know they were supposed to stay on their feet? They thought they were supposed to fall down when you sped up the treadmill. So what is the bottleneck in that system that if we can leverage, if we can intervene and provide more bandwidth, provide a broaden their boundary condition in that domain, will that provide them with the affordance, another term, to, to be able to accomplish the task? Same way with the, with the concrete and to ice, example if i okay they start shuffling well i don't want them to shuffle i want them to walk normally so what's the rate limiter well it's the environment and it's the lack of ability to manage friction so is getting them stronger is back squatting going to help with that is is getting doing plyos going to help with that no change their shoes their their ability to manage friction was the rate limiter so in that case it's not yeah so exactly or skates in that case it's not (laughs) a physical ta- uh, uh, individual constraint that you need to manipulate. It's something It's some dynamic with the task and the environment. So an equipment consideration. And so, but this is the process. You identify potential rate limiters, you identify boundary conditions, and then you start to try to hypothesize where the bottlenecks are and where you can actually leverage those bottlenecks. Because sometimes there's bottlenecks that you can't intervene on. Somebody who's six four, you're not going to be a, jo- a jockey, Jeff. I'm sorry, you're not going to be Correct. a jockey. All right. <laughs> in rehab, I, I use ACL as an example because it's an easy one. It's the, there's the most research, and we can really kind of tangibly see these things. When somebody has an, an ACL reconstruction, there's this thing called arthrogenic muscle inhibition that happens, where the quad just goes sleepy sleep, and it's it's a protective mechanism. There's been a trauma of one, the inner injury, and then surgery itself is a trauma. So this knee's been right. through a hell of a lot. Inflammation, all of the things, the 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 quad literally shuts off. Um, this is resolved with repeated exposure over time. But what you'll see is emergent movement strategies because that constraint. Because of that now state change, it's like, okay, the person doesn't have this ability to produce knee extension torque. So if they want to run, if it hasn't, if it hasn't been restored and they want to run, cut, decelerate, what you'll see is a strategy in which they don't have to use knee extension torque because they don't have that. So what you'll see is them use a hip strategy, meaning have them do like a single leg horizontal jump. With somebody who's got uh, an inhibited quad or a limb symmetry index of like 60, 70%, meaning their quad on that surgery leg is 30 to 40% weaker than the other side. What you'll see is them adopt a movement strategy that allows them to accomplish the task, but that does so in a way where they don't have to use the thing that they don't have. They don't have that individual constraint afforded to them they find a new movement strategy. And what you'll see is they land with a locked knee and they'll use a hip strategy. So the trunk will come forward, the knee will lock, and they'll just, they'll put the load into the hip. You'll see the moment arm of the hip become a lot larger and of the ankle. um, And you'll see them minimize the, the moment arm at the knee. And they're not coached to do this. This is 
just what self-organizes itself because of the because of their current boundary conditions. So so they'll so, flex more at the hip because they can't flex because they don't trust flexing the knee essentially. Exactly. So that flexion that needs to occur essentially just gets pivot pivoted elsewhere. Yeah. yeah. And the ground what's interesting is oftentimes so athletes are smart whether they even realize what you're doing or not like they'll get symmetry from a hop distance standpoint and the ground reaction forces will be the same but the strategy will be markedly different yeah that's so it, and 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 it's a perfect example of a complex system self-organizing around its around its current boundary conditions um and you know we can get into why that's potentially an issue for that population but i use that more as an example to just illustrate the point because you could see this for anything if if somebody can't lift their arm if somebody has the goal of of lifting a weight over their head you know i work with weightlifters manager it is that is the sport putting a bar over your head if they have if they only have 150 degrees of shoulder flexion well they're not going to be able to orient their torso perfectly perpendicular to the ground to put that barbell over their head. So they're going to have to reorient their their torso. Yeah, they're going to have to do something. And so now relative relative motion is 180 degrees. They got the bar over their head, but it's almost like they're just kind of doing an inclined bench press from the top half. Right. But but the task was lock it out over your head. So this is a it's a mental model. It's a conceptual model to think about the components of the task interacting with what the person is bringing to the table physically psychologically um cognitively yeah you know for trying to if kind of separating affect and like things like fear versus things like i just don't understand what you want me to do and then the the task itself and you can play these thought experiment games where you start mixing and matching changing up certain variables and trying to imagine right. how the the system would get the task done or if it could at all right and and so that and so I'll stop there and we can talk about that. But that's that's kind of an overview of the of the conceptual model of the constraints led approach. Um and I think it's I think it's useful and I think we do it all the time, whether we call it that or not, which is most mental models. We see the our, our entire world not, is nothing but mental models. Yeah, we just we just we've observed it and now we just have a model that represents our observation. Yeah, right. we've put some labels so, on it and organized right. it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's all anything really. Anything yeah. that's the, if you want to really get down the rabbit hole, it's like everything is just like, here's an observation. We'd slap some words and, and concepts around what we've observed. And then, you know, people yeah. argue about it. But it's, um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And the reason like I'm so interested in it is because historically in this field, there has been a lot of fear mongering and sort of nocebo built around certain movements, oh, yeah. um, which are not necessarily even were not necessarily understood. I think people just see sort of silhouettes of movement. And it's like, that got me into the whole rabbit hole of like, I don't know how, how much of Hartman stuff you got, you you've gotten into or if, at all, but like, understanding the difference between like orientations and relative motions and like people are just kind of looking at silhouettes but they're not really like looking at the individual pieces of of things to understand how those individual pieces affect the whole and yada 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 because 
like one of the interesting things that I talk about all the time is like, um, it's sort of like been labeled as like movement optimism. It's just like understanding that we're not fragile and that these dynamic systems, like the variables, even though like from the outside, we all are very similar. Like we're very symmetrical. We all have like, for the most part, you know, two limbs, two eyes, two ears, like we, we, we're all pretty much the same, right? Like we're as human beings, like for the, for the for conceptually thinking about it, we're very similar. Like there's not major differences yet. There can be so many individual variances or lots of variability from person to person if we actually really start breaking things down. And like one of those things is like just different concepts that I would learn through CrossFit or ways to do certain things and technique. And then it's like, once you actually kind of get into the sport a little bit, like you understand there's a need for beginners to like have some sort of like really restrictive constrained model of like, this is yeah. what a squat should look like, or this is what a snatch should, or whatever exercise, or whatever the task may be. Right. It's like, it should look like this. And it's any sport. Like if, if you played baseball, like you initially, you kind of teach all kids to try to hit the same way. Or you, you try to teach all kids to shoot a basketball sort of the same way. The elbow has to be here. It has to be at this height. And it's like people get very specific about these sort of representations of like how to execute certain tasks, which it becomes an interesting conversation because, okay, you're just looking at the task, but you're not really looking at the environment. You're not really looking at the organism or the individual and then trying to understand how those pieces fit together and why when you have two people do the same thing, they execute the task on a surface level, which may look the same way, but if you slow things down um, and you start to see like a lot of different patterns emerge. And like, you know, even if you think of like going all the way back to um, uh, Bernstein, right. And like Bernstein's problem and, you know, trying to understand like, why is it, you know, um, the, the, the most productive blacksmiths, like, you know, when they went to the research of like, what is it that makes them so productive and why are they so good? And of course, everyone thought like, hey, well, you know, they're going to, you know, when the hammer strikes the nail or the chisel, you're going to probably see the same pattern over and over and over. They've just like mastered this one pattern and that's what makes them so good at what they do. And then they found out when they made the comparison between like artisan blacksmiths and novice blacksmiths, it was actually quite the opposite, right? Like the, the, the artisan blacksmith was able to deal with like perturbations and changes in the systems. Very, like, and, and, there, and if you actually look at their path, why there is some silhouette of the same pattern, you start to understand that every single swing was actually different. And this is like things that we've, we've reconstructed with like golf swings and baseball swings and even like bar paths and things like that. If you actually really look down, it's never actually the same. And even like things like muscle activation and things like that. When we try to read EMGs, it's like, why is it if we do the same pattern is the muscle pattern like rate or the firing rate? Why does it never start with the same muscle or end with the same muscle? And why are the rate? Like, it just starts to get like from the outside looking in, if you don't really know this stuff, it looks very chaotic, but then you start to kind of go, Oh, like it, it's not this like skill acquisition is not like, Oh, you, you download this program into your brain and it's just repetition after repetition, you find this like one way of doing it. We actually probably can look at most elite athletes and, and start to understand that they're elite because they're, they're, they don't only have one way of accomplishing the same tasks. They, they, can, they can deal with, you know, all the variables and perturbations much better than normal people. And then you were going to sort of speak about like why that may be good and why that may also be bad because there are also, there can be different outcomes from that where, 
you know, obviously it's good that we can adapt to things, but why is it all adaptations aren't necessarily good, like in the long run and, and stuff like that. And maybe that's like, maybe you can start getting into that concept or kind of how you see it. Cause I think it's, it's an incredibly fascinating conversation because if you go and look like at any elite weightlifter, like from a surface level, they all do the same thing, snatch, clean, jerk. But if you look at their squat, or if you just look at how they execute a snatch or how they execute clean and jerk, you're start to gonna, you're, you're gonna start to see from all the elites that there is actually tons of variability when we look at like technique and how they execute those tasks and things like that. And then it's, people start to then use that as an excuse for like why we shouldn't really care so much about technique. And then, then everyone just starts <laughs> going, kind of going back and forth. Where, so it's yeah, like, yeah. where's the middle ground, right? Because I think that's the, when people get into this, they start to struggle with that a little bit because, you know, even when I talk about certain concepts, it's like, no, like, squatting like uh you know you, sh- you don't have to shove your knees out to the side and then you get people that are like yes you do you absolutely have to shove your knees out to the side and there there can't be any medial deviation of knee travel but then if you actually look at like height like any like really probably good squatter there's always medial deviation of knee travel for the most part it's like and it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth and so how do you sort of reconcile these two different arguments because it's like obviously we understand the value of both but it's like where where's the line right i guess it's kind of like what i'm what i'm curious as to how you sort of map that out more or less yeah i try to anchor it to the outcome i try to make i I think about what is the actual goal here is the actual goal to squat with my knees out or is the actual goal to stand up with the most weight that i could possibly stand up with under the under the constraints of powerlifting rules or is my goal to stand up from this heavy clean as quickly as i can to conserve as much energy for the jerk not to keep my knees out right so i think i think we get so number one is what is the actual goal itself if we, if we start making a specific way of moving the end goal in and of itself we run into problems because unless you're a gymnast or figure skater where like where there are these subjective and even then there's like you are you are still going to move in ways that are subject to the constraints of of whatever the task is if if knees in versus knees out is not a part of the the rules that that govern what is you know going to be scored a 10 or not then you're not going to care as much about that um i mean what we're getting at is is injury mechanisms that are conflated and it's a game of telephone where we can do like research we can look at research and we can say pretty confidently that the mechanism of an acl tear is land on one leg in less than 30 degrees of flexion and some combination of knee abduction tibial uh, a knee internal rotation, tibia goes out, femur goes in, hip internal rotation, some combination of that with a, with a sufficient amount of force on the knee that's pretty much straight, and you increase your risk of tearing your ACL. That's been shown over and over and over. If I could try to tear my ACL, I don't, I wouldn't want to do that right now. Like, I could probably tear my ACL don't if I wanted it. to. Yeah, <laughs> by doing that. But that doesn't mean though that we can extrapolate that doesn't first of all that doesn't mean that 
landing with a with a stiff knee every time that you that you jump and land is bad because oftentimes it's the fastest way to go back up to go left to go right to evade paradox yeah it's the performance injury paradox and then number two we start to extrapolate to movements that that don't fall into that bucket at all like squatting like you your acl the 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 fibers that are most at risk for acl rupture are slack at the bottom of a squat when your knee is that flexed that's why people tell you to land with a you know land with like parkour they land like yield like, like yield yeah. into the movement allow yes. the muscle tissue to actually lengthen so the tendon is not actually yeah yeah and, yeah, the, exactly. and the ligament just just biomechanically is on slack at the bottom so right. we're really mostly talking i don't know maybe we're talking like meniscus or something but it's not even a i don't even know what people are scared of um that's number one and number two when you brought up nikolai bernstein and his idea of repetition without repetition this idea that experts it, it's kind of our example before where you can roll the hill roll the rock down the hill and it's never going to follow the same path twice but it's always going to fall down because there's this governing principle called gravity and so expert movers they have variability of process but they have stability of outcome so the expert blacksmith like can is yeah you're going to trace that swing and it's going to look a little different every time and they can probably do it eyes closed they can probably do it all different ways if they want to just showing off but they're always going to hit what they want to hit the way that they want to hit it the nba play playoffs are going on right now if you don't like basketball think of any other sport that you care about there's it, there's a whole lot of difference between shooting a free throw or shooting in an empty gym just shooting a set shot from the same spot over and over and over versus adding a crowd adding fatigue adding a defender in your face nine other players on the court and now you have to make the same shot experts have variability of process stability of outcome beginners have variability of process and variability of outcome and that's the difference in exposure and when you're injured your variability in order to get variability or to get stability of outcome you create stability of process so you lose options i'll go back to my acl example the athlete who hip who picks the the hip strategy because they have no other option this is this is not a conversation of oh it's good variability like why are you getting like it's good that their system self-organized this is a matter of them not that's the only option they have right so now they're going to be exposed to that locked knee torso forward over and over, no matter what because they don't have another option they're they're stability in order to get stability of outcome they have to have stability of process and you see that in many different populations where in an injury in, in the case of injury and pain their movement variability actually decreases which is counterintuitive you would think that though they're hurt they can't control their body yeah, they're the going to be ways around place. yeah it's actually yep. the opposite they become yep. rigid their system becomes rigid as a as a compensatory mechanism to to protect and to get stability of outcome right like degrees of freedom reduce relative motions reduce and then basically people just they start to use the same orientation over and over and over yeah, and over and exactly. over again which leads into like same tissue same. yeah exactly yeah it's and, predictable Right. Yeah, it's predictable and and so now we can throw out another term of this this idea of attractor states where the system is gravitates toward a certain 
uh, I mean, in, in calculus, it would be a certain data set of coordinates. But in movement speak, it's they they settle into a, a pattern that they're comfortable with that they go to they go back to over and over and over, and they don't have another option. So in the ACL example, the attractor state is that hip strategy. Now, if I if if I expand their their bandwidth, if I yeah, and just just to clarify, so people know, like an attractor is just a state that you're basically moving towards. It's a in, yeah, 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 exactly. So think about it's a it's a it's a pattern that you settle into. Right. So walking on concrete that turns to ice, you start shuffling. So now your attractor state is the shuffle. Right. You yeah. settle into that real quick because the task was stay on your feet. Don't hit your head right. on the ice. Yeah. How could you get out of that attractor state comfortably? Well, you would provide them with an affordance that allows them to do so, which gives them different shoes. So now they can shuffle if they want to, but they can also walk normally because management of friction is no longer a problem. So in our ACL example, go choose a hip strategy. Again, go watch some of the greatest performers and they're going to slam, they're going to stiffen up, they're going to slam their foot into the ground. Go watch a javelin thrower. Go on YouTube after this and watch somebody throw a javelin and watch their knee, that plant knee hyperextend. Baseball pitcher, front leg. Baseball, exactly. Yeah. Because that's what's going to that's what's going to give them that plant, and that's what's going to help them direct force where they want to go. And uh, jumpers, like the penultimate step when they throw their block leg in front, same concept. Yeah. Penultimate block step, boom. Yep. Yeah, to 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 manage that horizontal momentum to send it vertically, hundred hundred percent. Yeah. So the the issue though, again, is when they have no what they're choosing that to maximize performance. The system will often become stiff and rigid and non-variable because they don't have any other options. Right. And so as a clinician, the idea would be, they may still choose a hip strategy, but it's because it was the best strategy for the situation, not because it was the only one they have. If I can restore their ability to produce knee extension torque, I hypothetically restore their ability to have movement options, to have a repertoire, to have some redundancy built in. Doesn't always work like that because just because I restore their knee extension strength on the knee extension isokinetic or knee extension machine, that's like ground level does not, of course, does not mean that they're going to integrate that skill or that newfound bandwidth. That's a whole some, other can of worms. Of it's like a whole other can of worms. Isolation and integration and like, it's, yeah, it's wild. It's wild. But it's the same, <laughs> it's the same concept though. It's you introduce yeah. a new, you introduce degrees of freedom. You introduce, you open up uh, boundary conditions, you add a little bit of chaos, you add movement complexity, like it's the same principle. Right. It's you're still setting the stage. You're still, you're still creating the boundaries. You're either reducing degrees of freedom to be sure of what you're directing towards. So a knee extension, I can be, my predictions of changes in knee extension torque over time are much higher if I'm using a knee extension machine as the modality than if I'm using a squat. Because there's some, when somebody's in ACL, there's some real interesting stuff where people do some create, the body's amazing. Like it'll do some crazy things to offload that quad and you can't see it. Yeah. The, both feet will be on the ground. Both. So I mean, like you'll see the silhouette and it looks like everything you want yeah. it to look like, but you can't really, yeah. 
but these papers will show if you got somebody on force plates along with 3d motion capture she can actually like calculate the uh, individual joint torques what they do is a real subtle real slick um shift forward onto that surgical leg and so they bring their they bring their body weight forward and what it does is it decreases the moment arm at the knee and increases the moment arm at the ankle so they actually start plantar flexing into the floor as a means of taking up some of the ground reaction force that it would be at the knee if they drove their knee their heel into the ground and their knee forward heel into the ground knee forward that's all knee that the distance that the knee travels forward that moment arm is going to grow but because they don't have that quad they don't drive their heel down their whole foot's still on the ground visually but what they do is they shift towards their midfoot so when that knee starts to come forward they're shifting their body weight concurrently with that and the moment arm doesn't actually change so the demand at the knee doesn't actually change because their center mass is actually changing basically exactly yeah. it's crazy it's crazy and you can't see it so they've yeah. looked at it they they so this is how the body self-organizes and it's amazing so when we isolate we just have to we just have to understand the limitations that come with isolation but but sometimes isolation is the goal if i know that you don't have this on a knee extension machine or an isokinetic you're not going to have it why would i think that you're going to have it when you're decelerating from a full sprint right so we if we can identify individual constraints that we that we actually can modify that we think will provide leverage we may decide to constrain the movement such that it, it becomes this isolated thing that like you said we we now have to integrate right. in some in some creative way that doesn't just say all right jump off the knee extension all right now go practice tell me how you did um and no rehab professional or coach would say that they would say oh no well you know we'd get on our feet we'd start to do some some drills on the legs we'd start to do some reactive stuff We're like yeah that's right. but that but it's the it falls under the same model of what are you actually doing well you're reintroducing degrees of freedom and a little bit of perception and action demand where they have to think about something other than their knee but you've at least objectively reestablished or um to some to some degree a constraint that you had measured and that you had identified that you feel would provide some leverage to the system it's a lot it's a lot to unpack for i mean it it's interesting too because i wonder what you think with this just thinking through this sort of <laughs> the gap between rehab and performance, because I, I still feel like what I see a lot of is you see systems and models emerge that are very good at sort of making people good at that system and model, but actually really yeah. have a hard time sort of getting the person back to where they want to be which, you know, like being in both settings of like performance and in rehab setting, you sort of, you sort of see a huge gap between you, maybe you go back to rehab and you isolate these factors like you talk about and you enhance the, the, you know, you enhance them, but then 
there's something that's missed along the way where, like you said, but because it, it, it does actually happen where somebody's like, okay, great. We got your knee torque back. Now go play soccer and tell me how you do or whatever. Whereas like, there is a bit of a gap missing a lot of times. And what I've found, unfortunately, is like people actually as a whole, I don't think are actually that good at getting back to the integration. And I, I think you see a lot of frustration with people in this industry where they go to someone and they're looking for help. And it's like, you know, I, I'm a weightlifter, but my, I have knee pain, but I have to squat. I have to be able to, you know, do this, this, that, and the other. And then they go to this sort of acronym labeled system, you know, just to like, which is kind of a, a broad stroke of many. Um, but they kind of go to people who specialize in like this model or this system. Yeah. And it's like, next thing you know, that person's like getting really good at, at sort of, of doing the, the thing in the, in the system that this like, you know, I'm trying to like not to use names, but it, it's like <laughs> <laughs> they go to this practitioner of this system and what happens is they get really good at that system. And it's like, but then the, and, the, and then they kind of get like lost in the weeds a little bit and they don't even realize what's happening. But then they're like, okay, why am I doing this thing? But why haven't I really gotten back to what I came to you for? And it's like, whether it's like a bit of gaslighting or just like whatever the case may be, but like it's something that I, I feel like happens a lot. I feel like the integration factor and like really getting people back to where they want to be like is missed. And I think that there is a huge sort of mistrust built now um, where people are even skeptical of like just general health because it's like, like I deal with them all the time. Like I have a guy who sent me like, like a damn resume of like all the problems and the people he's worked with in the systems. And of course, like you have to look at the individual too. And like, they have to take a little bit of responsibility, but it's like, once you actually realize it's like, he just kind of beat around the, got beat around the bush over here for three months. They weren't able to get him to where he wanted to be. Then he went over here and it's just like, it happened for like a decade, just one person after the next, after the next. And it's like, yeah. he just, he's like, all I want to do is lift weights. I just want to lift weights. I want to be able to go to the gym and whatever. And he's like, it's still a decade later. It's, you know, these systems with very like restricted and constrained models. And it's like, you have to do your breathing drills or you have to do this and do this. And next thing you know, they're doing that for an hour and they're not ever really getting back to where they, why they came to you in the first place. And then it's like, then they just get frustrated. And, and then it's like kind of just this, you know, um, it's just kind of sad, honestly, because I feel like because there is has been tons of fear and, and placebo built around certain things or like weird correlations made. It's like, yeah, like I could kind of see where you maybe could correlate that, but like you still don't really know. And then but then you tell them and now they're scared. And then, then that creates like a whole a whole mess of situation of like, like, how do you sort of rectify that? Because I have to imagine that you're. What's interesting about you too is like you you are a DPT, but you're also an athlete. So you have the sort of added bonus of of like you are a, a you know a doctor of physical therapy, but you're also like you're you are an athlete. You train, right? So whereas like like I feel like that kind of it's unique. Like not to say that it, like it's more unique if you actually look at like who sells systems, right? And it's like okay, you sell this system. And you're trying to sort of integrate it into this world, but you're not involved in this world. So you don't really understand it at all. It's like, you know, and I, I think that's maybe that's it. I don't know. What, what do you think? Does that make sense? Does that question make sense? Like kind of what I'm trying to get to the bottom of? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I see it all the time. Um, 
and I, it is ubiquitous in physical therapy. I, I also think it's present in training. Um, oh, yeah, you know, systems training, aside, yeah. e even if it's just getting good and like getting good at an exercise for the sake of the trainer's idea of what that exercise should look at versus what that exercise is there to provide. Um, again, I think it comes back to keeping the goal, the goal and the goal is whatever the whatever activity that the person wants to get back to. So that's my North star. So how I how I combat that in my own process is always revisiting with the person, by the way. So like the informed consent process is ongoing. It's not some form that somebody signs before they even talk to me. It's it's a constant dialogue of where what we need, where is it that we want to go? Where are we currently? And here are our options to get there. And here are some, and, and here's what might happen along the way. That process is iterative and it's ongoing. So that is my, my first bit of insurance against forgetting what the heck we're doing in the first place and, and making some like my agenda or my goal, the point of this whole thing instead of the person's. Um, but I always just try to reverse engineer from, from their desired activities and, and find thresholds and entry points from there. So weightlifting is nice because it's very measurable. So I can ask people, you know, what movements I kind of create buckets, what movements are your, are giving you the issues, it, the issue that you're coming to talk to me, what are the movements that trigger that, that flare those? Okay. This one, this one, this one. Are there any movements that are relevant in your training, but that are not a problem? They're like, oh yeah, I can do jerks fine. Or I can do, they start listing other movements. I like, cool. If I make a list of those movements. We're going to train those like normal. So I start already thinking in my mind how I'm kind of slotting their training program. And so I've got movements that are kind of what I'll call like green light and say, we train those like normal because they don't affect us negatively one way or another. And then we've got movements that are mostly fall into this yellow zone where these are trigger movements, but they have thresholds. So I'll dig into those deeper. Yeah, they cause my issue, be it hip pain at the bottom of a squat, knee pain, shoulder pain when I'm going overhead. At what point in the range of motion? Is there a range of motion threshold? Is there an external load threshold where the issue gets worse as the weight gets heavier? Is there a proximity to muscular momentary failure threshold? where it only really hurts when I'm pushing that R, that RPE. Is there a variation threshold? Squats hurt my hip, but only back squats, not front squats. Right. And so I, I, so we create these, these boundaries, these thresholds, we identify these thresholds, and then we flip it to say, okay, well, these are our dosage entry points. So I start to reverse engineer their range of motion threshold. Okay, how can we constrain the movement to get them to perform some semblance of what matters to them, but at a at a range of motion that's kind of nudging their threshold, but maybe not blasting through it so that they're laid up for the next week. Same with external load. Oh, it only hurts at 80% of one rep max. Okay, well, there's 79 other percentage points that we can work out. Same with volume, same with reps and reserves. So that's kind of my first order of business like that is my system is oriented to re from reverse engineering their their tap their goal task and so now all of these interventions have some type of meaning 
because I'm explaining the rationale, by the way, this is like a conversation. It's not just something that I do on my own and say, all right, here you go. Here's what you're going to do. Right. Say, which, which, well, I don't want you to lose your train of thought. So I'll, I'll hold on to that, but go ahead. But I mean, it, it's potentially the biggest piece of this. So like on the call, right. like I'm asking them, all right, I'm asking them these questions, when it happens, where it happens, at what point it happens, when you have a flare up, is it, are you laid up for the next three days or the next two weeks? Does it go away 24 hours later? And I'm explaining, okay, so these are, this is all great info because this is how we can create what I'll call this MVP or this minimum viable program in the beginning. Right. It's a starting point, but we have, we have entry points based on thresholds that are based on what you care about. If you're a sprinter, does your hamstring hurt during the acceleration phase or is it only when you get to max V? Okay, it doesn't hurt during acceleration. Fantastic, because we can train acceleration lots of different ways and we can be a little bit more graded with how we introduce max velocity work. And maybe that just starts with bounding and drills, um, sleds, you know, things that are going to keep you more into that acceleration orientation. That's just an example. But you, again, start thinking about the the activity or sport the person's having trouble with and, and think about how you can manipulate variables to get them to do some variation of that thing. Um, and that alone is, I mean, it's, it's worth its weight in gold because you have a program right from that. F from there, it's this rate, it's this idea of rate limiter leverage point, this complementary pair of rate limiter leverage point. So we have kind of our, our scaffolding uh, based program based on their current tolerance thresholds, velocity, range of motion, external load, internal load. And then we start thinking about what's really holding us back here and, and what do we want to hedge our bets towards? Do you actually have the range of motion in this joint? Which by and large, most people do. They either just don't know how to access it. They don't know how to organize their body. Um, they, they feel tight or it hurts. And so they assume that it's a mobility or a range of motion problem when they are literally like send me a video of them squatting ass, you know, like all the way down, you couldn't yeah. go any deeper if you wanted to. Yeah, so yeah, that, yeah, that's always a funny conversation. Cause it's totally. like people like, like, it's interesting. Cause I've like very much been in the flexibility world and yeah. it's like people stretch and like, whether you believe in stretching or not, it's like the thing you have to think about stretching is like, you're always in your end range. Right. So it's like, like I have a, I have a girl who will come in and literally will just melt into the floor. Right. And she's like, Oh, I feel tight today. And it's like, I, and it's like, but you're like at your end range. Like you're always going to feel tight there. Like I don't know what your exactly. expectation is, but they think like, Oh, I got to stretch more. Right. Because like, because I'm tight and it's like, no, you're just like hanging out in your end range. You're always going to feel tight there. That's always a, like a funny conversation or like a funny totally. point people bring up because like you you bring it up and then they go, oh, yeah, I guess that's a good point. You know what I mean? But then some people yeah. just don't even, it doesn't even register. It's like. <laughs> they, But I think people, they when you bring it up, though, they do get it. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, now that you say it out loud, that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. And, but it's the same idea. Like the, the mirror of finding the rate limiter is figuring out what's not the rate limiter, which is probably more realistic and useful because we don't actually know what factors are going to provide the most leverage and bang for buck. But we we can have a better idea of where we don't need to spend time. And so if somebody can do the splits three different ways, 
Range of motion is not your bottleneck. It's not right, your rate right, limit. Right, right, right. If you want to do it, fine, but not it's there's opportunity cost. If you spend 20 minutes doing that, that's 20 minutes that we're not spending doing something else that's actually going to move the needle. So that that's a conversation that's to be had. Again, like here are here's what we found. Here's where I think you're not limited. And here are some areas that we could potentially work on that if we can nudge the system, you know, nudge in creating a little bit more bandwidth in this area, you know, maybe provide more options for you. Range of motion becomes relevant in post-op cases where even though you're always starting with the end in mind, go back to ACL, it's going to be like a nine to 12 month journey for this person anyway. So like, yeah, they're going to get back to running and jumping and cutting. But right now, you know, they're on crutches and in a brace and they can't even like do a quad set. Right. So the reality is it's bottom up and range and it becomes these very this very impairment based model just because that's the nature of it. But aside from post-op, I find that you know, maybe shoulders, but we can start to bucket some of these some of these needs and work on things concurrently. Just because you don't have full 180 degrees of shoulder flexion doesn't mean we can't do snatches and clean and jerks. We're going to find variations of the snatches and clean and jerks that you can perform with consistency of outcome, stability of outcome that don't flare you up for days on end afterwards, because then we can't train. So what's the good in that? So it's, it's finding a combination of variation dosage as a starting point, as close to their meaningful variation of, of activity as we can get. And then we start to look back and say, okay, is there room, is there need here for some type of, of more constrained, uh, kind of more focused, could be whatever, you know, whatever we want it to be, right. plyometric, whatever your model is at the time. Am I thinking that I'm uh, intervening on tendon or bone or, or tissue or hypertrophy is actually meaningful? Um, and I want to have kind of a bucket in the program for that tissue specific adaptation. Or if I'm still into kind of movement and patterning, where maybe I have a bucket where we're starting some plyometric progression that I don't think they're ready to do, go hard on very frequently, but like what's literally stopping this person from little, little baby hops at 180 beats per minute right now. Right. Um, yeah, no, they can't handle sprinting at the moment because of their Achilles tendinopathy, but they're walking. So, you know, let's start filling those buckets. And so to your question of like, how do you combat the gap between rehab and strength conditioning? I think it's a, I think it's more so a gap between the needs of the person and what, and the biases of the professional, yeah. regardless of what field they're in. Yeah, I think when you when you talked about it, I kind of had some points hit where it's like what I ultimately have realized is that I think just quality of care is low. I think yeah. especially with like and I and I will say that like generally, I, I especially like being on the online market, it's just such an easy cash grab for most people. Like you can be totally, I mean, you know, even now you get into the AI and chat GPT written. I mean, it's crazy <laughs> now, but like. I think you just like kind of instilled the value of coaching and just like really double down on the value of like finding someone to bounce things off of. And I think like 
at dynamic systems in general, it's like, it's what you need. You need to constantly be throwing things at the system and seeing how it responds and how it reacts. And then you need someone to sort of serve as a buffer because you as an individual, you're involved in that system. And so you are going to have your own biases in terms of like how you perceive the interaction where now you have someone on the outside kind of looking in and they're making their observations congruent with your own observations of like what you're involved in, like how valuable that process really is. Because I think people try to sell sort of like these, these uh, like rigid solutions to things like, this is my program for knee pain. And if you do this, I guarantee you that your knee pain has gone. And it's like, okay, that may work for 50% of people. And it's probably, you know, not, or if, if we just take like the nocebo placebo thing, it's like, it's, it's for sure going to work for 20% of people. It's for right. sure not going to work for 20% of people. And then there's going to be like 60% of people that can be influenced one way or the other, just depending on all of the other variables that are involved in this system, like their thought processes, the environment, their, um, their, you know, their own psychology, like their thinking, how they're influenced. And again, just like all the variables within a dynamic system that can affect it. It's like, it can kind of go both ways, but it's like, that's just kind of how problems are, are, are sold or solutions problems are sold as like this one plus one equals two. And it's like, it's not really like that. And I think you just like really touched on how valuable that constant back and forth process is. And that's probably where the gap is, is like, even when you go to physical therapy, it's like, I had a, uh, someone who came to me, knee pain for six years, constantly dealing with like lateral knee pain. And they've gone to physical therapist and they brought me in like their most recent sort of, um, you know, like, and, and first of all, I don't even think she's like a person who should be like in this like loop of, of rehab, but that's another discussion. But, you know, she comes in, she kind of shows me and it's like, when she told me what they did at this facility, I was like, that's actually kind of wild because all they did was take measurements of knee extension, knee flexion. They put it into a computer apparently. And it like, they put those measurements in and based on those measurements, this computer like spat out a program that was like supposed to be her solution. Right. But like, we're not computer programs. So you like, sure, that might work for someone, but in her case, it wasn't working. And it's like, of course she comes in and I, and I just start to break down piece by piece. I look at her foot. I look at her shin. I look at her feet. I look at her hip. I realize, oh, her shin literally doesn't move. Like her, her tibia doesn't rotate like, at all. I get her, go in there, start manually moving her tibia around, start to get her to actively rotate her tibia, go back with some foot drills. It starts moving better. She stands up. She's like, oh my God, my knee pain's gone. And it's like, I'm not a wizard. I don't think I, I, I do miracles. It's just my quality of care and like my ability to actually sit down with somebody and look at the thing and test the things. And, and it's like, let's try this. Okay, this is what happened. Okay, let's try this. This is what happened. Not just, oh, okay, you have knee pain, boom. Here's, like I said, clamshells, supine leg raises, whatever. See you in four weeks and let's see how you do. And there's just no, like, there's no back and forth. And, and the problem, I think, just with this process is it, it can change. It doesn't have to, but it can change day to day. It can change hour to hour. It can change week to week, month to month, or whatever. And so it's like, it's this thing that you, you constantly are going to have, at least... For them, like you're constantly going to have to sort of like work back and forth with because sure like maybe in like the earliest stages of rehab there's like sure things to get people back to where we want like you said like um you know knee extension torque is like a, is like a it's a pretty like good marker of like where we need to be or go 
and a percentage of the other one. And like, we do have some objective metrics, but then it's like, okay, now we have to kind of go into this gray area of like, how do we reintroduce this isolated concept back into the system and how do we get it to sort of absorb this concept and now move us towards like the attractor, the greater goal of like what this person was. And I think just the quality of care kind of in the gaps has to be significant because you have to be constantly, you have to be willing to go back and forth consistently testing against the system and seeing what happens. And it's like, there's like the person has to do that individually. They have to test things. They have to try things. They have to be willing to test and try things because some people just aren't willing. And you know, that's another discussion is like, they have their own ideas and expectations and they're just unwilling to do whatever. And it's like, okay. But I think that's probably, I'm just thinking this through my head because I guess that's probably where it is. And it's like, it's hard to do online, right? Like it's really actually yeah. hard to do online. And, and then like also just the investment costs, like to have the time to go back and forth with someone like that, it's going to cost money, right? Like it, it, like, like it just is. So, and then, and then exactly. probably like yeah. once you get back into the performance, it's almost like you can let the person go a little bit and they're going to start figuring it out. It's like, it sort of seems like in those two gaps a little bit, it's things probably are a little bit more predictable. It's just like that stage yeah. of like kind of getting them from bridging them from one back to the other is probably like a little bit more complex just in terms of like what perturbations can occur and like the, ver the, like the, the variability of just the outcomes, depending on like how you're testing things, I guess. Yeah. Feedback loops is, is, is what I'm hearing you talk about and yeah like, feedback yeah exactly yeah and it's not even and feedback loops aren't just aren't just literal the person f giving you information based on what happened feedback loops are every every bit of information that that you're observing all the tests and measures the training data plus their subjective you know literal conversations with you like all that information feeds back into the decision that you make next then the decision that you make based on all of this feedback drives the programming or drives the system, observe, you get that information, you compare it to where you thought you'd be, you make a decision, you go forward. What you're describing is there's no closing of the loop. So okay. the person gets, I actually have less, I have less of a problem with this AI generated program based on her whatever measurements in the in the very very beginning as a starting point to get that 20 percent right. of people who's going to be fine with this ai program right. but i have more of a problem with the feedback loop not being closed once that didn't work doesn't work that's that's the, where the that's human the error yeah that's where the yeah exactly that's where the human matters and it's the same in tra with training and template programs they're going to work for a lot of people but if people don't understand how to navigate the ups and downs they don't understand how to close the feedback loop themselves by modifying training, knowing what's important, right. what's not, just pushing through, like not worrying about the fact that they didn't PR this one training session and just continue <laughs> the training, like that they close the loop by just saying, all right, my decision is to continue forward based on yep. this information. That's where the coaches are needed if the person can't do that. It it's just as needed in training as it is in rehab. Yeah. It's just that the the presentation and the state changes tend to be more volatile in rehab with pain and injury um there the the adaptation cycles happen a little faster or the de-adaptation cycles happen a little bit faster all of a sudden your tendinopathy's flared up and you can't even go down the stairs like right. just like that you know that type of stuff so 
it's not that it's a different principle. It's just that it's more volatile, more volatile. And I think people are even they just they don't know how to close those loops themselves even more so than just training because i think people separate pain and injury with like training fatigue like it's something different because i'll ask them do you i mean when when you were healthy did you expect to pr every time you came to the gym and they're like well no i wish i could ha 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 yeah and i was like okay so do you expect the knee pain that you've had for three years to linearly improve over the course of the next six weeks yeah. Well, I guess not. So it's just, it's the same it's the same exact yeah. principle. It's just magnified. The, the the issues are magnified. People don't know how to close the loops themselves. Yeah. Part of my job for me, my personal clinical philosophy is helping them to learn how to do that. And so that my like we joke like if I'm doing my job, you won't need me again, knowing that that's not true that they also have friends and family. Like it's going to come back to me from a, like, I'm not worried about. Yeah. Business. Like I, I'm, I'm <laughs> like, that's something it's funny. I tell all my clients the same thing. It's like, it's like, you know, my work's done when you don't need me anymore, but like, it's interesting because in that process, there is like a level of respect and thing that sort of occurs. That's almost seems counterintuitive because like yeah. a lot of people think like, Oh, if I solve the problems for them, or if I, if I teach them what I know, if I kind of let them, just take my perspective like it's like just see the world just see it how i see it and once they take that on people i think like intuitively think like oh well i'm gonna lose it but it's like it actually kind of comes back like probably tenfold almost not maybe not tenfold but it comes back exponentially in the sense that like that's how i've built a business for 12 years yeah. it's like most of my clients are pretty stable because I do give them my thought process and I give them the ability to see it the way I see it. And they for sure can solve the problem on their own now, but it's like, there's almost like this respect that sort of has where it's like, wow, they kind of gave me this. And, and now I'm just going to like keep this relationship going because obviously like, it's sure. a, a good relationship, but I yeah, mean, that's business moguls have mentors, uh, they, everybody. So now it just becomes like, if you're, you know, the client that you've had for five years, it's just more of just a collaborative relationship. Collab yeah, exactly. But it's still the same process. Like you're still, it's feedback loop after feedback loop after feedback loop after iteration, problem solving. Um, it's more stable because neither one of you are freaking out so much about every little thing. Everything, yeah. And like you are probably not, but like a new, imagine a new coach, new trainer, new coach, new PT, and somebody who's injured, scared, and oh, yeah. they're both freaking out. It's just yeah. this constant reaction. The person comes in with the flare up to say, oh my God, I have, I'm not better. Like my knee actually felt worse from the last session. Young physical therapist panics and says, oh, okay, lay on the table. And they just do random manual therapy for an hour and like don't have a plan. It's not connected to what they did last time or what they're gonna do before. It's it's this, this constant state of, there's no process. It's just constant state of chaos and there's no closing of the feedback loop. Right. It's just kind of hoping and praying that they feel better the next time, you know? Yeah, I think there is a bit of 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 fear because people probably perceive it as like non like the inability or it's like not as controlled as they want. Because I've obviously like human natures, like we try to just control everything. But like I think the paradox is when you are allowed to free yourself of control, you regain control in a weird way because now you're not reactive, you become um, you know, you become more methodical and logical about how you see things occur. And then you just sort of understand the, the process rather than just like being outcome driven. Like, obviously we want to, we're all like driven towards some outcome, right? Like we're not just 
Yeah. Most of us aren't just floating around out here for the sake of it, but yeah. there is a bit of, okay, I can kind of take this step by step. And, and I think there's just a lot of value in that because like you said, people do, especially when pain and pain is its own complex dynamic system, especially if you buy into like the BPS biopsychosocial model, you understand there's like pain alone is there's many, many, many influences in just that subject of the human being. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's like, um, I think like teaching people how to manage it versus just being like, let's solve it because I've, I've helped people by just removing like neuroticism and anxiety and think about the process. And it's like, you know, it, yeah. I had an athlete in here who like tweaked his back, um, back squatting PR, like 150 pounds, like hits like four it was something crazy, like three times body weight. And he had like a little twinge, like a little tweak. And of course he's like, like my back. Right. And he's like, what are we going to do? And it's like, we're going to change as little as possible. Right. Like we're going to basically continue going the way we're going, but we're going to make some slight adjustments, some slight, we're going to constrain certain things a little bit. We're going to test. We're going to see, okay, you can't, you, it was a back squat. You can't back squat. Can you front squat? Can you zercher squat? Can you safety bar squat? And I think he ended up just like safety bar squatting for a few weeks. And then PR does back squat three weeks later, but it was, it was like just getting him to not freak out and like, Hey, relax, trust me. It's okay. It's not the end of the world because what I have also seen is people do that. And it's like, boom, I'm in a, I'm like in this rehab model now where, where it's like, everything is rehab and I can't lift weights and I can't do this and I can't do that. I can't even go on walks or it's like, they just start limiting everything. And it's, it's just like this really kind of bizarre process that happens, but that happens, I think, honestly, to the majority of people is they just get terrified and they're like, you know, I break my leg and I'm, I come in the next day and I'm trying to figure out how to deadlift. <laughs> it was like insane, but I'm like the way it's just like a different experience for me is like, I think also just through training, like we've had a lot of years of training. I think the relationship with, with, certain experiences or pain experiences or discomfort. And it's like, because like you kind of mentioned earlier, you have a new client who comes in, who's never trained and they do back extensions, like, you know, or anything where they use their low back and it's like, Oh, oh my yeah, God, my low back afterwards. Right. They're like, what's happening? What's going on? And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. it's like, there's a difference between like feeling your low back and then like, like an, Oh shit, my low back. Right. And it's like with a new client, that's a really funny experience. Cause it happens all the time. They think like any sensation is like a bad sensation, right? Whereas like the more advanced and more elite athletes get and people are like, oh, they're just stupid. They're training through pain and they're training through the, around this, around this. It's like, uh, I just think their relationship with it has changed and their understanding of it has changed. And it's like, there is a difference between being stupid and being like unreasonable. But then there's also, I don't think most people are, are, are like sort of going through that. Like I had a kid this past weekend, we, we did a seminar here who like was a football player and was dealing with some knee stuff and dealing with some back stuff, you know, collegiate football player. And I'll just say that he sort of found his way into this like acronym labeled system and like lifting weights was kind of off the table for the way they present their model. And then like, he comes and does this seminar and I'm like going to hack deadlifts. And uh, he's like, he wants to try the hack deadlift and he hacked deadlifts 500 pounds. Like he's like, <laughs> I haven't deadlifted in a year and a half or whatever, but it's like, but to watch him just kind of like, like go, wait a second. Like, why did I stop? If like, maybe you couldn't deadlift, 
like a, a conventional deadlift, but you just hack deadlifted with no issues. And now you're asking, he messaged me the next day. I want to start squatting again. I want to start deadlifting again. I want to start doing all these things because it's like, you just kind of let him, just kind of let him do it. You know what I mean? And, and then he, the light bulbs went off on his own and, and now it's like, yeah, it's, it's just really interesting. It's just this whole conversation, like just the, tra- like whether it's rehab, whether it's training and then like understanding it through the lens of, of dynamic systems. And like, like, I think at the end of the day, people are just lazy. Like you don't want to observe and you don't want to like keep the process going of, of feedback loops of just like testing things, see if it works, see if it doesn't work, understanding that maybe changing your expectations a little bit, especially as you, um, you know, as you age, not literally age, but obviously also literally age, but just as an athlete, your training age goes up. It's like, you're just going to understand that like the thing that what I thought about fitness and the, the, the way I thought about progress and the role of training both just from a general perspective, but also from a hyper-specific perspective in terms of like, if I'm training athletes, it's like my whole world has just kind of been tipped upside down, but at the same time, it's also reinforced certain things. And it's like, it's just interesting because models do serve a purpose, especially for like, especially like non-fluid models serve a purpose for beginners. Because if you try to like, if you try to teach somebody like, if you try to teach somebody um, dynamic systems and systems that move, then it's um, and they're like a new trainer or something like that. Like it's going to be really hard for them to just like they need to have a step by step that they can just start working with. That's like you know, like you you know it's going to work probably for a good percentage of people, if not at least the the bias population that you sort of work with, and then you kind of can go from there, because I don't want people to think that like five by five starting strength, it's like, that's a great starting point for a lot of people, but it is going to have limitations at some point. And it's like, you just have to, I think, you know, I think the growth sort of comes when you're able to actually start to deal with the perturbations is also one of those words like that in dynamic systems, but it's, it's, you're able to deal with them and understand them a little bit better. And I think that's like, really ultimately what people who are very, very good at their thing. But since we're talking about like training and rehab and even just within the profession itself is that you understand that it's part of the system and those things are going to happen. And if you just accept that those things are going to happen probably at some point, then you're just going to be able to manage them and deal with them even better than, than those who, who aren't or can't. So, um, yeah. So, you know, it's, Dynamic systems. I just remember when I watched the video on it or somebody sent me articles on it many years ago. And then that's what kind of led me down the rabbit hole. And then I got into like, to leave like anti-fragile and like, then you just like, and they started pulling all these concepts together and it just started all unpacking for me. And I, you know, you're someone that I've just watched for many, many years. And like, obviously it's been, it's influenced you, but I just, for whatever reason, whether it's just me, I've just most recently watch you talk and speak more about it specifically. And so, yeah, I just, I, I just thought it's like a wonderful conversation to, to sit down. And I think that your breakdown of it is like inc- incredibly simple, but deep enough that people can start of sort of start understanding that there is some complexity there, but there is also a lot of simplicity that it offers you too, once you understand the principles of it. 
And I, I think, think people so. get lost yeah. in the complexities without like understanding that what are the actual principles. And I think that's probably the flaw of most people when they look at models is they look too much at the nuance of things. And then they try to identify that model around the nuance when really it's like, what are the principles that the systems have to offer us? And like, let's look at those things. And I think when you actually look at the principles of like most systems that emerge, they all mirror one another pretty well. And then everyone just starts yeah. to argue over the nuance. Well, that's the idea of principles versus methods. So we've got a whole, like, the reason I'm talking about it more, or like maybe outwardly, is because I'm, we've, it's basically the entire lens of, of what we're doing with clinical athlete is um, learning to, to prescribe exercise within a complex system. That's the idea. And so it's, I mean, the whole crux is like, think about a new, a young clinician who just can't figure out why their person had a setback, even though they did the daily undulating periodization program that they read in a research study <laughs> to a T. And so back to what you just said, like, they're putting methods before the principles. And so the whole, the whole idea and the idea of, of even, you know, speaking at the NSCA about it and is giving people. Was there framework. pushback on that, by the way, just oh. out of curiosity. No, okay. No, because cool. I put up, you know, what I would do is I would put up videos of a lifter who's either injured or has chosen a movement strategy to that gets the job done. Or I show a lifter whose movement strategy changes all of a sudden based on a change in, in constraints. And we just start having a conversation and we start playing the potato head game. And I say, well, what, what factors could modify this? What factors would you use? You know, what interventions would you use in the gym? And then, and I say, Hey, congratulations. We just talked about dynamical systems and the constraints led approach. Yeah. So they're, everybody's doing this. They, they, they try yeah. to troubleshoot and they perform an intervention. I just think that modeling it in this way helps you to organize your thoughts a little bit around it. And it also helps you to audit your process as you're going through these feedback loops, feedback loops, you think, okay, have we identified the needs? Have we identified the buckets of need? Am I actually addressing the things that they need to be able to get back to what they want to do? Where are our current tolerance thresholds compared to where they were? Are my hypothesized rate limiters the same? Like post-op, they have range of motion now. Like that's no longer a rate limiter. Why are we doing range of motion interventions every day still? And like you mentioned this kid who was just scared, like his rate limiter, his bottleneck was fear and misunderstanding from a prior, you know, from prior education. It, it had, he didn't, he was coming in with that. That was his constraint and that was his rate limiter. Or was focused because I've, I've obviously... I've done so much continued education, including all of the big fancy acronym like systems. He was looking at the methods and not the principles. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And the five or the five by five program, you throw a five by five is a method. And right. you could throw it in in five three one. It's a method. And you could what are it, what are the actual principles of, that yeah. give us progress, right? Oh, mechanical tension, progressive overload. Exactly. Because coordination, said, development of skill acquisition, because you yep. simply started. Yeah. Like and you, those are the principles, right? Because the principles take hold after the recipe stops working. Right. So a five by five and five through one are the recipe. A master, a beginner cook, yet recipes are useful because they don't know what the hell they're doing. They just need to memorize this. A playbook for a young coach is useful. They just need to kind of get their feet wet. But then what happens when the play goes to shit or when these the are great recipe, examples, by the way. 
Yeah. Or yeah. what's it? I just, or, or when the recipe goes awry, when the thing that they follow to a T is overcooked or undercooked, or they don't understand how the ingredients interacted. They don't understand the principles behind the recipe. Therefore they yeah. can't make iterations. So yeah. And it's the recipe book is always a good one because it's like, you think about your grandma's recipe book, right? Well, I don't know if they, we even do that anymore, but it like, if I oh, think I about the one that my mom got yeah. from my grandma <laughs> and then my grandma got my, from my great grandma, it started as a book with recipes, but over the years and over the decades of experience and practical application, and depending on your population, your bias of people that you're feeding, those recipes start to slowly adjust and they change. And maybe they add things here. They take away things here. Like the core of it's still there. The principle of that recipe is still there, but there's subtle changes and nuance made over the years yeah. that they're scratched out and they're written in and they're whatever. And it's like, I think one of the, like the basis of all art is, is science, right? And the science gives us sort of the foundation and it gives us the blueprint and the principles. But I think people get so rigid in this mindset of like, and especially online, I'm science-based, I'm evidence-based, I'm this and that. It's like your limitation is that you don't understand that it gives us the blueprint, but there is actually a lot of nuance and, and there are going to be subtle changes in this and that. And we have to look at context and we have to look at all these different things. And it's like music, like you learn notes, you learn different styles and whatever, but there becomes a point where the artistry is your ability to like understand the principles and then like bend and break them a little bit and kind of make totally. it its own thing while, while retaining some of the core, because you're still playing music, you're still using notes, you're still using this, but you're just manipulating the rules a little bit around whatever the outcome is you're trying to get. Maybe it's the, the style of music that you want to be in and, and, you know, so on and so forth. I think that's a really good, um, I like the recipe example. It's, it's just a really good one. I think a lot of people will understand. Yeah. yeah. First principles. If, if you make bread, it's not going to rise without yeast. Right. Period. End of story. But there's a whole lot of flexibility that comes with the ratios, the room temperature, all of the other ingredients, how they interact. If you can dig down What's diff the difficult thing is digging down to what are our actual first principles in training. Um, and we even argue about what that is, which makes this, which makes it confusing. But I, but I, I actually think the more, the, the more beneficial exercise is to just try is to even think in that way, like, all right, PRI, FMS, SFMA, FRC, whatever, DNS, FRC. Yeah. All right. Let's say, okay. This is actually a life hack. What are all, all of those acronyms? Is there any commonalities? Right. Where are those commonalities? Also, where do they diametrically oppose each other? Because they're both they're both wrong. Because right. I'm not if if <laughs> also what is it? All models are wrong. Some, some are useful. Some are useful or something like that. Yeah. There's zero chance that FMS is is the correct model by itself. There's zero chance that PRI is the correct model by itself. Right. If they diametrically oppose at some at some critical point, that's a nice place to dig into because there's probably some nuance there. Yeah. Elsewhere. And so you start, I, we, it's an exercise that we have with our students to say, dig for first principles, keep digging, keep digging. Yep. The cooking analogy is the bread's not going to rise without yeast. I can't dig any further than that unless I want bread that doesn't rise, which is a thing. But that's, just, that's the first principle. And then beyond that, we can manipulate different methods. But that's the constraint that we have. Gravity's going to, you know, the thing is going to fall if I let it go. 
So that's the constraint that we're working on here on Earth. That's why Newton's laws still work here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like we could just go all day riffing on it because it's. Oh yeah. I like I literally can nerd out on this stuff. Like I could probably just sit here for twenty four hours honestly and just talk directly about these things because they're so fascinating to me. And I think you made some really good points at the end of that of that line of thinking is just that like the principles you're going to see a lot of overlap, which is like, understand that that's what's working for everyone. And then there's like the nuance is going to be sort of where things diverge greatly, generally opposite of one another. But like sometimes if you actually dig into it, you'll realize things aren't really diverging. It's the language that they're using that diverges. They're talking about the same thing, but they're just using different language you know, have you ever tried to have a conversation with somebody who speaks another language? It's like the most incredibly frustrating thing on the planet, but it's like, okay, maybe you guys can't speak the same language, but like, look at your body language, which is going to be pretty universal or look at like, yeah, like there's other ways to look at it. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it is funny sometimes, like, it sounds like you've been exposed to a lot of different systems and I have as well. And it's like, it's funny to kind of just sit back and, and laugh and go, man, you guys are all right and you're all wrong and you're arguing over <laughs> things that you're wrong about. You know what I mean? <laughs> just... Yeah, no, you're exactly. You're arguing over whether sets of five or sets of two clusters are, are better. For hypertrophy, um, or like if this angle of the lat or this angle of the lat is better for lat, it's just like, man, like we've really gotten there, you know? Yeah. And it's I mean, gotta the life... be, it's hard. It's gotta be so hard. <clears throat> for people to come into the online space and like make decisions at this point. Cause it's just oh, like, dude. Fuck. <laughs> I say, say like an exercise in anything is to try to find, like, you're not going to be able to memorize the facts on, if you want to explore a new topic or learn about a new topic, you're going to be overwhelmed with all the things that you feel like you have to memorize. But if at all possible, there's going to be the yeast, the bread don't rise without yeast. There's going to be fundamental principles that, that if you can dig down into you will have a, a decent framework on that topic. And then you can layer methods slowly on top, but, but, but try to dig. And it's harder up front to do that, to know like what, who to trust, but you start to hear themes and underlying principles and you start to hear this kind of the same thing over and over and you, got, and you start to get a feel for like what you just said, for who's, saying that all the same things like all right five different people are like they say that they disagree but they all kind of said this thing they all kind of agree on this piece yeah. i'm going to make a little note of that because that must be something that's that underlines a lot of these different models you mentioned language cooking music language i think are great analogies here because um there's this trick in polyglot polyglot land polygot where people who speak multiple languages, what they'll do is they'll take a paragraph that has a lot of like important uh, grammatical principles of that language and different syntax. And they'll take that paragraph, that same paragraph, and they'll uh, translate it in the new language that they want to learn because that paragraph has some of the fundamental principles of the language right. baked into it. Well, because even and, just like all language came from one, yeah. one point and then it just kind of... Right. So then so. they just, they translate it. Now they study. It's like, oh, this is how in Spanish you put the direct object before the verb. And, and so now they can extrapolate those principles to the entire language. Now there's going to be holes. They're not going to be fluent from that very right, thing, right, but they right. will have immediately have a, a, 
a decent understanding of the underlying framework of the language and then you can memorize nouns like that's one thing about like learning language learning too is you start to memorize call like what's a car and what's tree and you don't even know how to fucking put a sentence together right it's the same with music theory I can memorize pecking around on the piano or I can understand chords and and scales and first and then I can start to kind of riff on my own and put those melodies together same with cooking same with exercise prescription yeah it's like training it's like you understand the principles start playing with things put it together and see what you come up with you yeah. know and like be willing to pivot like that's the thing too like I think that like for me I haven't I've specialized in like windows of times with certain fields, like in fitness, like wait, like, you know, CrossFit's obviously like, it's funny. It's like the gateway drug to everything because it's like, got everything involved, like gymnastics and weightlifting and powerlifting and, yeah. and like endurance training, like it's got it all. Right. And so then I find like people kind of do that. Then they specialize down or they specialize down for a little bit and then they kind of dabble over here and then they dabble over there. And then it's like, what I've kind of found is I'm kind of back to where I was when I started CrossFit, but also with like a greater understanding of like the bigger picture. And now I'm like really big into like concurrent training models. And like, it's like, I thought I understood like West side conjugate, but now like, I really think I, like I understand West yeah. side conjugate and like what was happening there. And, and, you know, it's like, it's the sport specific training, like is a very interesting conversation these days because it's like, everyone's trying to mirror their sport in the weight room but it's like the point of the weight room is like more generalized qualities it's not really specific qualities and it's just like and then you that's like a whole nother probably two-hour conversation that we could probably have at another time because i'd really be interested to hear your thought process on that so i'll note that because you like you (laughs) even talking about systems it's like if you if you look even that i feel like the the development of athletes it's like there's a big general preparation base like especially like if you look at elite set level settings you know and like countries that actually have systems in place for athlete development it's like there's a lot of general preparation happening and then there's like a hyper specificity that sort of happens while you need to coordinate certain movements or tasks and then like once you become pretty fluent at like being able to uh you know, achieve the task. So like in power of things like bench, bench, once you're good at like bench press, squat, deadlift, and you've done thousands and thousands of repetitions and you're very good at those, like there's, it's good to kind of branch back out and become a little bit more general. And that's like where you see like yeah. conjugate West side emerge where it's like, these guys have benched they're they've bench squatted and deadlift more than anyone on planet earth. And it's like the value was no longer in those things. It was versions of those things with various levels of different constraints to target certain things. And it's like, even if you look at like Chinese weightlifting, it's like a lot of general preparation for a few years. And then there's like hyper specific training, just like snatch, clean and jerk. And then they kind of generalize back out as the athletes become more elite. They, it becomes much more general. There's like the training's a lot looser. It's, it's more auto-regulated by the athletes themselves. There's a lot more variance in terms of like, there's a little bit of bodybuilding training in there. There's a little bit of powerlifting training in there from time to time. And it's like the Russian system's very similar where like, a lot of general prep they do a lot of like gymnastic style training and dance and other variations from a very early age and then they kind of get it specialized into weightlifting and then but then like like that's what like dmitry klokov made so famous about weightlifting is like he trained like so many different variations was like constantly pring random crazy variations that he just kind of came up with that he found helped him that worked for him instead of like 
So it's like, there's a looseness, then there's like a rigidity and then there's like a looseness yeah. again. And I feel like that's kind of the process of how it sort of, it, it ends up playing out. Like, in I general. mean, that's periodization. People think like periodization, okay, it's all it was block periodization or linear. And they, again, it's methods. No, like the principle of periodization is, is undulation and planning, but it's not, it's, it's not the same thing all the time. And I like, I get a lot of weightlifters who are not, they're not going to be national level even, but they've been training like hyper specific weightlifting programs for a long time. And their, their ability to adapt to stress is slowly shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. And there's they, no variability. There's no. no variability. They're in this rehab purgatory where they've had to cut out movements, cut out load, cut out volume. Oh, just little by little, their body feels worse and worse. They're getting weaker and weaker, and then they can't handle as much training. And there's this, it's a positive feedback loop because it's actually feeding into itself yeah. going in the same direction, but it's a negative outcome. Yeah. Because and, most people will start to then branch out. They'll start to go, okay, let me try something else. Or they'll do more of this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, well, hopefully, yes. <laughs> or some people hopefully, just beat yeah. their head against the wall and they're like, yeah. why isn't this working? But, but I think the idea of vertical integration of like, things don't have to leave the program, but the emphasis yeah. shifts. Yeah. Like you don't have, just because we're in a general prep phase, doesn't mean you don't have to snatch your clean and jerk or do, or do your sports specific skill. It's just the intensity is going to wane is going to, we're going to turn the dial down a little bit on some stuff. Yeah. Uh, but we want to keep the skill fresh. Like actually in some weightlifters will take months off of like the Olympics. They'll just play ping pong and they'll get well, like literally for months. Yeah. Purposely. Yeah. Purposely out of shape so that they are, super sensitized to training again when they hit once they hit yeah. hard the, um, you see everyone make the stir about Lu Jin, like his yeah. whole decondition and detraining how skinny yeah. he was and then just like now yeah, it was do do government subsidized programs help with that when you're a professional athlete of course they do do government subsidized drug programs help with that of course they do what are you talking about <laughs> well Lu Jin. Yeah, of course. Uh, no, absolutely. Of course. They do. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's, um, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Because it's funny because I've like recently, I broke my leg. I played rugby. So I fractured my fibula. I got hit just like full contact right in the side of the leg. Um, I'm very fortunate because if you watch the video back, it probably should have been an ACL, but or it wasn't. Too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or my tibia. So it was just fibula. You just cracked fibula, small bone, mm -hmm. but it forced me to change my tree because literally I was like doing like a power building program, just like something that I would, you know, cause I don't really have any specific goals other than just to be in shape and be big and strong and play rugby. Like it's, you know, which is, and, um, it changed cause I couldn't squat, you know, cause the external rotation of the fibula, like going into internal rotation and external rotation would bother it a little bit. And especially it's like funny, you were talking about it earlier cause there were thresholds. People were like, you're crazy. It's like, I'm just finding the threshold. Right. Cause like I could still do things to a point. And then there were just certain things that bothered it or inflamed it or just didn't feel right. Not like in the sense of like, I was doing something worse to it. It's just like, there was a threshold that I could go to and that was yeah. the cap. And like, yeah. I'm going to go to that. And then I'm just going to train there. It's not a max, it's not a PR, it's not whatever, but I'm still going to train. But I had to do deadlifts and then like mostly just on deadlifts. And it's funny because like for the past like month or so, I've been deadlifting every single day. Um, and people are like, how the fuck do you do that? And it's like, well, one day I do a deficit deadlift. 
One day I do a clean pull, the next day I do a conventional deadlift, the next day I do a sumo deadlift, the next day I do a suitcase deadlift, the next day I do a Jefferson deadlift, the next day I do a pack that, you know, it's like, it's still a deadlift. It's still hinge. Like if you just look at the silhouette of the movement, it's just like the variability of the single movement itself. I've broken it up into like 18 different movements, same ways of, of doing it. So it's like, I'm not trying to be a power lifter where I need to specialize the deadlift, but I am trying to strengthen that pattern, but I'm using the pattern every day, but I'm doing it in a way that the variability is changing so much where I'm, but still similar enough where the adaptation of all these different variations are still kind of like going to one point, but they're not yeah. so hyper-specific that I'm like, yeah, you know, like just like you said, probably just beating myself down into a hole. Right. So, um, I just think there's a lot of ways to do it that a lot of people like don't get creative enough about. And it's like one of my buddies is big into like old time lifting. And it's like really cool to kind of see like how they will train so intensely and so often, but it's like just the variability of the training was drastic enough that the stimulus was again, close enough that it, it, it worked for itself, but far enough away that the, the system doesn't get kind of run down by the redundancy of, of the task. Right. Right. So, and then times where you want to be on the, the other side of that coin, like squatting every day, for example, is a tactic to get back to a certain baseline really quickly. Right. So, let's think about a scenario that that would be important. I've had weightlift world team weightlifters, they've like their stipends on the line, they have a meet in six weeks. They're at a point where they've kind of recovered. We're at a, like a certain minimum of training load where like you're back. You're just not in tip top shape. Right. Uh, but in order to, we know, we also know that your lifts will go up when your squat is at a certain point, because that's the information that we've had from the past. So say, okay, like if we squat five days a week or I've, I've had, I've done it. I've had people do it for the next three weeks. We get your squat up. We know your lifts are going to also rise and it's a tactic. Right. It's not a health tactic. Like people will say, well, aren't you worried about? No, we're, like he wants us. He's worried about his money. <laughs> like yeah, That's yeah, what we're yeah, worried yeah. about. So like, it's just the reframing of these things as not good or bad. What is the goal in context? And anything can be bad or good if you flip the scenario and you, and you create a narrative around it. So yeah. I think that's the big theme of this entire conversation is just context. Like what print, what, what are your guiding principles and in, in what context? And then let's have the conversation. But before we, before we nailed that down, it's, it's hard to even talk about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's, I think you're right. I think that's where this all converges ironically is, is that alone. And like, obviously like on online, it's interesting because the platform that, <laughs> you have to deliver this information continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller mm -hmm. and smaller. But I think what you're going to see, and I think what you're already kind of seeing is a self-corrective in the same way that you see it in anything else. It's like our attention span has gotten so small on the content that we consume that people are hungry for longer form content and they're, they're, they're hungry for context and they're hungry for like, concepts and things like that again because it's like okay the 15 seconds it's like they're right. getting dumber they can feel it's, themselves it, yeah, getting dumber. they can literally feel themselves getting more <laughs> stupid and, and it's like 
they're like, okay, I need to re-engage. I need to like have conversations like this where you can sit down with somebody for two hours. And like, obviously like not everyone has the, the, you know, the ability to do what what we do here, but it's like, it's so rewarding for me because it's just refreshing, you know, like in, in, in the world that it is now, it's like, I'm very much more a YouTube person. Like I'll go engage in YouTube and like longer than I can on TikTok or any of that other stuff. It's just like, and when people blow up on those platforms, I'm like, you're good at marketing, you're good at whatever, but the quality of your information and also the thought process is probably so bad because the only way you can grab attention is by being incredibly black and white about certain things. And it's like, again, when you're looking at like the broad spectrum public of like, okay, you have a million followers, like, yeah, your shit's going to work for 2000 of them. And if it works for 2000 of them, you're riding the bank all the way home. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just, and that's what they're banking on, which is fine. But like the empathy that I have is like a, like a, a provider, like a service provider. Like I provide a service that has a certain level of quality care that I'm trying to deliver to people. It's so hard for me to like rectify that and be like, yeah, I need to go down that rabbit hole because I think yeah. that you can be incredibly successful financially with a little bit more nuance. But again, then it's like people just value it's a social credit, right? Like, oh, a million followers or 2 million followers. So he must really know what he's talking about. It's like, uh, yes, and for sure, yes, in some ways, but in a lot of cases, probably not. Definitely not necessarily. Yeah, some of the best clinicians and coaches I know don't even have social media. They don't even have Facebook. They're just doing their thing. They're just fucking changing lives. Yeah, they're they're like actually producing a product, right? Which is like kind of the last thing I just wanted. It's like, I think that's also a trend that you see is like, a lot of trainers and coaches, and it's not just this industry. Again, this is all across all industries is when they can't provide a product, they start to provide a model and it's like, mm. or like a philosophy, right? It's like, fuck, like I'm not getting results, but maybe if I package this and sell this as like a philosophy or model, maybe I can make money that way. I don't even give a shit if it works or not. And I think that's like where you see people like sort of pivot or transition. And it's like, it's just a really weird, it's a crazy world, you know? Well, and it can be reverse engineered, like your product. I mean, if you want to like say, just say you wanted to start TikTok because you know it can drive people in, but you have something that's also valuable. Like there's right. something beyond that yeah. platform and you can reverse engineer. Like if you already have clients, if you have programs that you're confident in, if you have courses, like that stuff can be flipped into content. Yeah. It's really hard to make surface level content first. That does help the algorithm. Like it's easy to get attention grabbing, great TikTok and oh, yeah. Instagram yeah, yeah, content, yeah. but it's very yeah. difficult to then switch your brain and say, oh, well, now I need to back up from that and create deeper, more meaningful content because you don't want like you want light. You want it's easier to get. Well, that, especially that once level. you go down that rabbit hole, that's what you're known for. And that's, it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and then it, your audience doesn't respond. It, yeah, that's. Yeah. Cause like I have, I have buddies that do that. It's like, I've pretty much maintained 50,000 followers for a couple of years yet. My, the products and services that I sell continue to rise. Whereas like, but I deliver my content in a way that's, I want to deliver it. Whereas like, I see friends kind of like, they like get a hold of the like viral shit and then they may boost a lot of followers or whatever. But then the engagement spikes if they try to deli- go back to what they were, you know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. a really, it's just a really fascinating, uh, yeah. in terms of like managing this space as a professional, because 
it's like, cool. Now you made this video that like makes everyone laugh or you trolled somebody and they're not. And now that's what the people are expecting because that's these followers came here for that. They didn't actually, they're not actually going to buy your products. They're not actually going to buy your services because now you just made it about entertainment and not really about like quality or like what, what can you solve for these people? So it's like, it's, it's unless you're selling t-shirts or something, then you can, I just find it personally difficult to go from create Instagram content that really hits and gets people to engage to switch my brain and put the, all right, create some actual meaningful, deep work into this course or into this or fucking my client programming. That's not actually going to see like the light of day, like put in some real important, like this person needs a great program. Like they need me right now. Yeah. And I need to set aside a couple hours to really think about their big picture and like create a plan for them. And then to jump on a call with this person again, and that I could have made 50 Instagram posts in that time. That would have got me likes and comments and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So just, you gotta, yeah. you gotta kind of look back at it, but then like, but yeah, like you said, you can kind of reverse engineer all that, that you made actually create a viable product. You can now unpack that and then put that on For social sure. media. Yeah. It may and not it may be, just be me like flashy writing. or glamorous, but yeah, yeah exactly. no, it'll yeah. be like writing a, like writing text on Instagram story and then saving that as a picture and then posting that as a, a slideshow. And that'll be my, like just my words, yeah. but yeah, that's funny. Like a blog. <clears throat> <laughs> I like it. I like it. Yeah. It's friends come and go, you know, and at the end of the day, it's like, what are the principles that guide everything? And I think that um, like people just like focus on those things. And I think like a lot of your fear, anxiety and worries, cause that's like really what social media creates for like a lot of people. Um, we'll go away and then you'll actually be able to kind of decide, you know, who's that person that you're going to look to for information and like the ability to actually trust them. And, and, and I think that like the more objective people can be and kind of step back and look at all the things and say, well, you know, everyone's right and everyone's wrong. While again, it's very hard to like make flashy Instagram posts on that. I think it just provides trust and value. And I think that's like one of the biggest things for me is people reach out and they're like, man, you said something. And I was like, I had a, like a, a reaction to it initially, but I held off and I followed you and I've been following you for two or three months. And like, as you, as your thought process and concepts have unfolded organically, I've just gained a deep amount of trust and respect for your approach. And it's like, and now they're getting investing like, good money with me because they want to actually take it to the next step versus like me just putting up what I would consider some bullshit in there. Ha ha ha. And I get a like and a follow and like nothing comes from that. Right. Yeah, Except like exactly. just like a little, a, a little ego boost. And then I move on about my day until that goes back down. <laughs> you, get caught, again. you get caught yep, in that. You're loop. a little rat. Just hitting the, <laughs> just hitting the lever. That's right, man. That's right. So Quinn, yeah, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I definitely would love to sit down and, and have another conversation. Um, once I actually listen to this back, I'm sh like, I like listening to things back and, and it's like, okay, what can we talk about next time? Because what I, what I'm trying to do is, is sort of the podcast that I like to listen to. I like listening to the same people with the same person as things go, because I feel mm. like I'm kind of part of a story and, and then I'm, I'm kind of there for how things evolve. So you know, if you'd be all right with it, I'd love to sit down again in the future and, and talk some more. But in love the meantime, you. where can where can people find you? Yeah, ironically enough, they can find me on social media. <laughs> um, uh, probably Instagram, 
quinn.hennickdpt is my i say my personal handle but it's it's also just business uh, but then clinical athlete social media channels for any i mean we do lots of educational free stuff journal clubs and and case studies we've got a facebook group uh the calu facebook group c-a-l-u it's a free facebook group people it's it's private so you you know you request an acceptance but it's it's free to join it and in there man people are getting jobs referring clients back and forth students are getting internships uh there's great cool. discussions posted in there all the time like it's it's an organic i'm honestly it's amazing it's it's great really like amazing. a little network yeah and it's That's dude awesome. it's talk about a complex system it's just like people are like creating their own little special interest group like pelvis and scoliosis so like, hey you want to do a scoliosis meetup online or even in person like that you know i don't know it's just yeah. it's just awesome to see like stuff like that happen so um like that any of those places and uh yeah cool man yeah and i'll post obviously once I, i'll get this turned around pretty quick honestly like as soon as it downloads here i'll send it to my podcast guy we'll have it turned around he's great and uh once it's live on apple google spotify i'll let you know um Sweet. and then uh yeah man i like again i can't i can't thank you enough for getting on here and, and spending a good amount of time talking to me um you know like i said at the beginning you're 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 someone I followed their work for for a decade, probably at least now. And um, yeah, it's just funny how like here we are 10 years. <laughs> like I was probably very much a consumer. I was still getting started in the industry. And it's like it's just been cool to see you grow and see you transition. And and we've had some engagement back and forth, but it, it, it was fine. It was nice to finally like really just sit down and chat with you. And like I said, I feel like I I know you just from that's that's the weird thing about the internet too is like <laughs> I don't know you but I feel like I know you because I've just followed you for so long and followed your work so again like I just you know I'm, I'm very grateful for for you taking the time to sit down I know you got a busy schedule and I'm sure you got a lot going on so again thank you so much dude of course I appreciate you having me you've been doing awesome stuff I'm, I'm honored to be on I'd love to be on again awesome man appreciate it thanks Passion.